We're all gathered here today to listen to a dwarf cast by Ganymede and Titan. Start the tape, please, Holly. Awoga, this is a dwarf cast. Hello and welcome to Rediscovery Series 5, brought to you by Ganymede and Titan. This is the series in which we revisit the delicious Red Dwarf DVDs one by one, sharing our memories and re-reviewing the features after up to 20 years in some cases. 19 years in the case of Series 5, which came out in November 2004, which was a long bloody time ago. Mm. I'm Ian Symes, and with me as always are Jonathan Capps. Hello. And Daddy Stevenson. Hello. I would say it was about 19 years ago. Well, by the time we release it, we'll see. <laughs> so, thinking back to November 2004, I barely remember a thing about this release. I wonder <laughs> why. Because I had just started university <laughs> in September 2004, and my priorities may have changed <laughs> so, compared to all the previous DVD releases. Yeah, I just started uni as well three years late but i wasn't crucially i wasn't living in halls i was at home so nothing much changed for me so i, I was probably devouring this but like yeah i don't really remember there was nothing big around the release other than the special edition remember that yeah, yeah. with a scutter mm. uh, no star it, it was a starbuck this time and then scutter was eight. Oh uh, yeah yeah That's i think like little die cast little metal mm. starbuck which i still have Obviously. Nice. It was. It's. It's good. It was corgi, really wasn't it? Good. Yeah. It was the corgi toy. Yeah. yeah. The, it was originally released as a you know a toy that you could buy alongside a pencil, uh, a big <laughs> red pencil that they'd packaged it with. It's a very nice model of a pencil, to be quite honest. With you. It is a very nice model. Yeah. 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 Like booking the trend of just like um, it's like wait a minute. This is this is good red dwarf merchandise that isn't a DVD. That's yeah. strange. <laughs> it's kind of fitting that it's packaged with a DVD because it was the best it was ever going to get. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I mainly remember is there was a few things that we that were particularly kind of exciting about it, like a couple of things in the deleted scenes that we've been, you know, kind of waiting to see. And at this point, we we expected a certain level of quality, and we got it, and it probably exceeded the expectations. If I'm honest, looking back yeah. at it. Well, I have used a website called Ganymede and Titan to research Welcome. what the contemporary feeling and reaction was. And apparently, I don't remember this at all, but apparently Play.com failed us all. Everyone oh. pre-ordered it from Play.com as usual, and no one got it on the Saturday, and everyone was really pissed off. <laughs> Bastards. See, uh, privilege right there's there. a, a post here, <laughs> yeah, posted on the 6th of November at 10.19pm, by me uh headline the posts arrived and the post just says oh fuck oh fucking hairy jesus and fuck cunt fanny hole <laughs> oh play.com why hast thou forsaken me curse you god for making me this way 2004 ian symes there <laughs> so yeah i said here that i i vowed to go out to tesco at six o'clock on the monday morning <laughs> to get it which I, once i read that i then vaguely remembered doing that yeah. There was a Tesco that was like five minutes walk away, a big Tesco that had DVDs, mm. despite having pre-ordered it on Play.com and it being in the post, uh, going out and getting it first thing on the Monday Wasn't morning. Yeah. <laughs> Stu yeah. Student loans are paid as soon as you start the academic year, incidentally. So that's probably why <laughs> you bought two. 
Yeah, if it was any later than early November. Because I seem to remember I bought two as well because I wanted to keep the DVD in its special edition box and have that mm. separate and then have the Series 5 disc as well. Yeah. So like having it twice kind of made sense from like a half-assed collector's point of view. <laughs> and I think the ones that you ordered off the internet were almost all the special edition ones. Like everyone's sense, internet yeah. orders were special edition, so you go and buy the standard edition from Tesco or H&B or Smith's or whatever. Still Woolies? Yeah, still Woolies. Still Woolies, yeah. yeah. Um, But yeah, another notable thing that I discovered when searching through the archives of November 2004 is the Monday was the 8th of November when this was officially released and in the shops. My review was up on the 9th of November, which is pretty good going. Shame it wasn't the exact same day, but there is fucking three hours worth of extras on this it's like yep. more extras on this than on any of the previous dvds which was my excuse at the time <laughs> however here we go jonathan caps's review non-existent i never did one either you never did one or it's fallen off at the some point in the migration fallen off the shelf. <laughs> i can't see why it would have done yeah maybe i just did. yeah well i had just started uni as well so maybe i was like you know being a good boy if that barely way. year one, Jesus. As soon as they told me, oh, like, none of these marks count towards your final grade, I took that a little bit too to heart, to be honest. <laughs> <sighs> Close call. Either way, I make it 4-1. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> so the best you can do is tie at this stage for the main eight releases. This is just like doing a quiz with Danny. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm getting hammered. <laughs> Pretty poor, Capsie. It is a bloody meaty release, this. <laughs> yeah. I was watching all the extras, and I was, I was feeling little swatty swat swat early this <laughs> week. And then I realised last night, I was like, oh, fuck, I haven't watched the near two-hour documentary on Series 5 yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd watched shitloads of other extras up until yeah. then, and I was like, I'd been spoiled. And I was like, wow, I've watched something some missing. Kind of... And I, yeah, and I, almost, I was like, oh, it's really good, this, this release, isn't it? It's so full of good <laughs> stuff on it, man. It is absolutely fucking packed. Like, yeah. I did the exact thing with the deleted scenes. Oh, I, really? I, last night, it got to about half 11 last night, and I thought, ah, oh, finished just in time. Like, I can still go to bed at a reasonable time. Oh, deleted scenes, uh, 40 minutes worth. Oh, yeah, 40 fucking minutes. 36 of those are hollow shit. But even, like, we both went through and missed off one of the biggest major features yeah. and still didn't feel shortchanged. No, that's the thing. I didn't realise it wasn't there just because there was so yeah. much other stuff to have concentrated on. And I think I've watched documentaries a lot, so I didn't really need to watch it too much. But I did pick up a few things I didn't pick up on having a closer eye. But yeah, so I, always, I always find it's, um, it's enlightening re-watching these documentaries with um, a more healthy scepticism about Doug. <laughs> I find, but um, but yeah, like maybe we've done this release a bit of a disservice by starting off saying, "Oh, you know, this is what we started to expect." Because when you look at it compared to series four and three, this is this is next level, isn't it? It's like it is. the, there's lots and lots and lots of extra little bits that add up to this kind of like this. Fe- almost feels like the first like release that you could say, "Well, this is close to like the ideal." DVD mm, yeah. release that, that they were aiming for. And the features that are there and carried over from previous ones have raised in quality yep. for various reasons. So normally on these podcasts we have one thing that we do a commentary on and then talk about all the other extras but 
we kind of realised that none of these ones really suited a commentary. Like Dwarfing USA was a candidate, but we've talked a lot about Red Dwarf USA recently. Like we've done a whole Red Dwarf USA podcast, and also it comes up a lot in the last few smegazines. The SFX of Red Dwarf Five was a candidate, but then we realised that that in it's itself is mostly just a commentary <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> we'd be commentating on a commentary so we decided fuck the police we're not going to do a commentary for this one the commentaries will probably be back for the next release because there are some yeah. more easy candidates on there so instead shall we just go through this lovely list of features on foley yeah let's see let's see how many i've forgotten box. to watch the first one is cast commentary which is different because yeah. No, Craig Charles. No, yeah, Craig Charles. He was, he's not well. So like the balance is all off. It's all different. Yeah. But is that for the better or for the worst? Uh, it stops. It like Craig was the only other person who could sort of like temper Danny. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but like I almost feel like Danny is most likely to play up to Craig's. It's almost like you know splitting up the two naughty lads in class. Oh, I moving see. One to the front. So... Yeah. yeah, I I, yeah. I think Danny Danny plays up. He he's always playing to a crowd, and he's always trying to make people laugh. And I think Craig, that is true for Craig more than anyone else. Uh, he's I still mean, a Chris, pain in the yeah. ass, but he's like, yeah. <laughs> I like Hattie is clearly just like making it fun for herself while yeah. they're doing these commentaries because <laughs> she is throwing out some amazing jokes that like <laughs> flights of fancy that her brain does when she hears something and then immediately just reacts to it and it's like yeah. i've just realized where i where i get that from <laughs> other than being around you guys for way too long she on and, and saying the first thing that comes into your head because it might be funny yeah it's um, a stand-up brain isn't it like yeah she is that, just that she's quietly brain. hilarious yeah just she'll say and something and she, realize how funny it was, but no one will kind of react in a in a in a suitable way, and it's really annoying. It's a little bit like the fast show sketch of the woman that men can't hear. Yes, yes, like she, she's there bashing things out, and the men are just yeah talking over it. There's often a case, and I, you know, it, this could be with anyone starting a joke, because one of them will make a joke, and then every single one of the others will just repeat the joke down the line, and then it always ends with Danny repeating it very at the very <laughs> end. And he does it about four times, and then and then he does it about four times, and then he then he, he's rude about some random actor, and then he calls Norman Love a cunt, and then they move on. <laughs> like this is this is the pattern. Um, I have a confession to make. I didn't have time to listen to the commentaries at all. Oh, really? At all. Uh, oh. So how are the terms will, of table? Because I've been Shit. making notes on all of them so far, but of all the things, I still like. I'm. St- I still don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. It's interesting this one because this one does feel different because Craig's not there and there is a different kind of energy in the room. Chris seems to be a bit more animated. Actually. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he's kind of like the. He kind the of alpha sort of ri- rise up Craig's, to take the yeah. space that Craig mm-hmm. has, has, has created. I do remember him literally impersonating Craig at various points yeah. and having conversations with his own impersonation. Yeah, he does He does do this thing where after about 10 minutes he'll just be like, you've been quiet, Craig, what are, you, uh, what, what are your thoughts? And then he'll just, he'll, just, he'll just keep coming back to it every now and then. And it's a really good running joke. It's, yeah. And what I find really fascinating is that after all this time, they just have this kind of this relationship where... They could turn up to each other at a pub and just rip the fuck out of each other and walk away, still best friends. Like there's, there's mm. not much that would ruin a friendship with 
you know what I mean? There's just there doesn't seem to be anything that would would break it right now. Well, like they've gone they've gone through it all, haven't they? They've gone through hating each other, especially yeah. you know, Craig and Chris. I just think yeah. that like yeah, but it's like they've gone through, but they still act the same way and be friends rather mm. than do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The, the ribbing's yeah. still there. It's just it's taken differently. Um, I said it's fascinating. But it still feels the same now because this is like when they were recording this, they'd been together as a company for like fifteen years. Now we're nearly twenty years on from that, yeah. and it's still not changed. That's what I mean. They haven't. That's they're, weird to think. Yeah. They're probably even better friends now from the impression we get. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's that chemistry, isn't it? You just can't you can't replicate that. That's why the show is special in so many ways. It is extremely rare to get a group of show business people, like creative, artistic people. And for them to not have a catastrophic mm-hmm. career-ending falling out at some point in thirty-five that's years—that's happened, yeah. happened because, like, that's yeah, happened. that happened in the that's writers' true. room. Yeah, that's a good, very good point. Twice. Yeah. <laughs> it's happened. Both. I mean, I think, very I think, obviously, they think at some point, obviously, Chris threw his teddy out the pram and decided to leave for yeah. a bit and then come back. But that was down to other things other than just work and sort of relationship yeah. problems. It was a, it was a, it was a work and a, and a, you know, time commitment problem. And also, the thing that brought him back so quickly afterwards was realizing what a lovely time he'd had doing his little bit in series seven. Yeah, it is mm-hmm. like he realized it's probably at that point that he realized, hang on, this is a bit more special than anything else I've done or I'm going to do. Uh, at some point, all of them have come to terms with the fact that their career is defined by the show, and I, I got a feeling that Chris was probably the one that it was hardest for to to accept. Because he's more the career actor. In fact, he is the only career actor. And also, he is the most... (laughs) This is no disrespect to anyone else, but he is the one most deserving of having become a comedy legend and, you know, of having more than one career-defining role, like Ronnie Barker or... Mm. You know, and he did. Season. I mean, like maybe he's like, "Oh, okay, I have had my second career-defining role. People will know me. Like I, I know people now." Mm. Um, I put a Smuggler Drive meme in work Slack the other day, and one of our developers said, uh, "Oh, that's the guy from British Empire, isn't it?" I was like, "Yes, it is." But this is up. This you know, do you know? You know, this is from Red Dwarf. So it's like British Empire to some people is like is Chris Barry's role. That is who he is. I guess he had that, and he's just like, "Okay, fine, fine." I'll go back to Red Dwarf. I can accept that I am Rimmer. So if you've not you've not listened to the commentaries and and I did listen to the first three commentaries. Um <laughs> so I've got some notes. At one point they're talking about Jane Horrocks quite a lot, rightly so, because she's brilliant. And Hattie says that she has a Rochdale accent and uh what she actually has is a Rottenstall accent, which is about <clears throat> twenty miles away from Rochdale, actually, Hattie. And it's exactly the same. <laughs> to be to be fair, though, that, that is enough of a difference to have had a different accent, though. Especially yeah, I guess. Yeah, like, in yeah. Between Leeds, Sheffield, Barnsley, you know, like we've got all these different accents, and you can tell if someone's from Sheffield rather than Leeds. You can tell if someone's from, you know, what I mean. Oh there yeah, are, there yeah, are, that's true. If, if that's because that's anyway. because everyone, and I mean everyone in Sheffield, is putting on their fucking accents. <laughs> Fight me. I I think. That you can tell the difference yes. between Leeds, Sheffield, etc. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can tell the difference between Birmingham, you know, West Bromwich, Warwick, etc. I struggle to tell the difference between Essex and Kent, but for anyone that's from down south, it's yeah, they can, night and yeah, day. Yeah. Well, the thing is with up here is um, 
there's lots of towns, a lot of most northern towns, I would say, are in the northwest, but they're really squished together. You don't have to go far. So you do get a lot. I mean, apart from Bolton, which sounds more like a Yorkshire accent, really, from my, my ears than any other yeah. part of Lancashire. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I did enjoy their impressions of her, like the, the world ours, so don't be dirty. And <laughs> it's, it's one of my favorite accents to take the piss out of. Now this might be, where you move there. I yeah. don't know whether this is something that can be explained in a commentary, but Ian, I was wondering if you might be able to try and explain to me what crossing the line is, because they mention it in the Hollership commentary. They say, oh, he crossed the line there. Well, like, when we about... watch I Camcorder, I think it might tell us. But oh, yeah, go on. that's a good point, <laughs> <Yeah>. actually. <laughs> there is an imaginary 180-degree line straight line on which all the cameras are placed one side of the line and all the actors are placed on the other side of the line to cross the line means that you have one shot where uh, it is hard to explain <laughs> it's it's like offside it's obviously, it's yeah. i even tried to understand what crossing the line meant so the crossing the line is basically where the camera is pointing at an angle it probably shouldn't be it if you have two people talking to each other and they swap sides um then you'd normally cross shoot so that one of them is you know, looking slightly towards the left of the camera yeah. and the other one is on another camera looking slightly towards the right. It's if you were to move that camera to be in the first person's position, you'd then cross the line because you're looking at that same person from the opposite angle. I tend to okay. visualise it as if a camera shot would have had the, like, would have, would have caught another camera in its shot from a previous point in the scene, then that second camera has crossed the line because it has potentially put itself in a position where it should be seeing the cameras it's from a theater yeah. thing i think yeah. because like if you picture yourself as the camera is the audience of a theater mm. then you can only look at it from the front or some of the side angles you but you can't look at it from the reverse you can't angle. go onto the stage and look at it from that yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if the if the camera is in a position where it would be stood at the back of the stage getting in people's way then that's breaking the it's, it's funny line. thing because it, it is like a fundamental thing it's like i mean not everyone would immediately spot it but i i do think that even people who don't know what it is mm. would see something and think oh that was a bit that was a it bit would weird. Be jarring. Yeah, yeah. If you want to see a good example of crossing the line, is watch Bohemian Rhapsody. It's fucking everywhere in that film. <laughs> it is appalling. You know, um... Okay, this is interesting because they mentioned the POV thing in the documentary as if it's something that actually happened. Mm. But in the commentaries, they are inferring that that was a rumor amongst right, the yeah, cast right. that it was something yeah. that was said. That oh god, Julian, I don't know what POV. Is. I do have in my notes for heavy sciences. I do not believe Craig's POV story, and I, th I think we might have mentioned this before. Even though I think Danny then cross references it, I think they're all referencing Craig's. I think telling it's a story it. that's come from yeah a single point a point a single point of view. Do you see what's happened there? <gasps> so it's basically so it's come from like a seed of something, and then it's just mm -hmm. gone blown well, completely out of proportion. Like, do you know what the seed could be? Like, uh, so she actually admits she says, "I didn't know when I started this job. I didn't know what a split screen was." And her first episode was Demons and Angels, so it was a big problem for her. Yeah, like I, I wonder if that's where it comes from. Like, because it, it, you know, it's a fundamental thing for Red Dwarf. It's not necessarily a fundamental thing for a director in '92 to know, but mm. a director in '92. I don't know, Ian, if you've got a perspective on this, but a director in Night 2 will know what POV means. There's no way in hell. You're asking if I have a point of view on this. What's your POV on POV? I would have thought that a POV would have been standard 
knowledge for even for viewers yeah. <laughs> of, what, of what that meant yeah, yeah i just so yeah i agree that that seems i mean we're skipping ahead a little bit but we might as well kept carry on talking about juliet may while we're here yeah it did seem that there was an element that uh doug and the cast admit to of not giving juliet may the support or credit that she needed or you know it seems like she was fighting a losing battle yeah, from day one yeah. It was very sad, I thought, yeah. <laughs> the way that she was treated. Especially when you see what a brilliant sport she is. Like, this is 2004 she appeared in this. It's only just yeah. 10 years, over 10 years. 10 years, like, as we now know, <laughs> 10 years is not a long time. It, you know, it felt like a long time then, but it's not. And the fact that she was like, oh, yeah, I'll do an interview about, like, probably yeah. an incredibly traumatic, like, f- first big director's job, like, failure that she had. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, she comes across really well. She does. She comes well. across and brilliantly. Like she admits the, yeah, you know, graciously says you know the bits that she got wrong or the bits that she struggled with, but also defends the some of the work that she did do, yeah. and quite rightly because it, series five looks amazing. I think that the cards were always going to be stacked against her. Like there was a lot of factors about Red Dwarf in particular as a show is just one of those shows where it has a sort of a, a shorthand where if you if you weren't there when that shorthand was set up. Yeah. Your learning curve is going to be insane. It's not only shorthand, it's like it's whole like standards that were being invented. Like like Ed Bai was was pioneering some things. I mean, he was the <laughs> you know? he he was the reason why split screen happened in the show was because yeah, Ed was able yeah. to deal with that. So when you then take that director who, who doesn't have that intuitive knowledge of how to do a shot with split screen and you plug in the director who has never done split screen before, yeah. What did you think was going to happen? It's not. It's not like split screen is something that is commonly used everywhere. And also, like simple things, like if you if you think about it, the the practice of pre-records and then playing in VTs on the audience night presumably was standard. I don't think it was standard that those VTs needed such an incredible amount of work on True. them before yeah. they get yeah. shown. Um, yeah. With that, with that amount of turnaround. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for Demons and Angels to be the first show she worked on, fuck, fucking. I mean, that's a tra- that's yeah. a baptism of fire. Right it's bad now. enough, like, <laughs> it, like it's bad enough showing Demons and Angels to someone as their first Red Dwarf episode. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that's traumatic enough, I would say. Yeah. But like, fucking. Yeah, yeah I can't imagine what that would have been. They failed her. They def like the whole structure definitely failed her. But like, it wouldn't. It you know it wouldn't be the case these days. But it's like I bet you Andy Diemeni when he came in, I bet you he got a fair bit of a fair bit more help. Let's say so maybe from I what think, they learned. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's the thing. So I think when I think they learned their lesson from five, and then said we're going to get a visual effects director to help with the more complicated things yeah. and that's where and also technology had kind of advanced to the point where they could do digital split rather than mm. analog split the the juliet may stuff i mean they spend a lot of time on her almost the entirety of mm. the preamble of the documentary is about her but it is also one of those things where it was kind of the first time with these dvds where you know watching it and saying wow this is candid and this is like Maybe yeah. the first time they were properly fully candid, and that continues throughout the DVD as well. Um, so that feels like a, like a watershed moment. 
but it's also possibly the first time in the show's history where there is a need to be that candid. Mm. Series five is the first time where something went wrong or something, you know, something was really, really difficult, a major problem that needed to be overcome. One to four obviously will have had their ups and downs and things that were difficult, but nothing as catastrophic as we've Mm. lost a fucking director. Yeah, nothing that they had to address. After two and a half episodes. Whereas from this point onwards... Six, seven, eight, and everything in the Dave era has had huge, yeah. almost insurmountable in some cases, production problems. Yeah, but yeah, it's not as astonishing as we're smegged dealing with it. You know, fucking weeks after <laughs> after the incidents that they're I mean, talking about, but still, you know, in terms of a TV professional's career. Like we were saying, the twelve-year difference between series five going out and this DVD being released is not that much for someone like Doug, who's had a nearly a fifty-year career now at this stage. Fuck yeah, yeah, and it and it is it's like a watershed moment because it's uh, they'll be like planning this out. You can imagine it's like okay, we can't ignore the Juliet May thing, we can't gloss over it, so we have to address it. How do we address it? And like all those decisions that were made about tone and fairness and getting her in, getting her side of the story, having a lot of her yeah. side, because we know to take Doug's point of view with a little bit of a pinch of salt, because obviously he has his own agenda and his own point of view, but basically facing it head on like this just set the tone for the future. And it was mm-hmm. a very important kind of moment in the DVD production, because this is the sort of stuff that we were getting all the way up to Body Snatcher and 10, like you said, until yeah. Baby Cow put an end to that. <laughs> I come to the conclusion that the production of this DVD treated Juliet May a lot better than the production of Series 5 did. It's, it feels like this is sort of writing the wrong. Yeah. Because it would have been easier to just have five minutes of Doug and the cast listing all the things that were wrong <laughs> and like listing all the problems and just having their perspective. Yeah. Like their perspective is fair. Mm. Like I, I, I thought it was really candid of Doug to admit, you know, I felt guilty. I felt partly responsible i felt that i could have done more so that version of the documentary without juliet may would still have been fair Mm. but there's nothing quite like having it come from the horse's mouth yeah and it's just it's great and fair play to her like we said yeah for not just wanting to gloss over it and go oh fuck no why would i want to dredge that up that you know that few weeks you know quite quite what what would have been a pretty horrible time for her to be fair yeah, it must yeah, be. Absolutely. Like, imagine that right at the start of your career. Like, everyone starting a career has imposter syndrome. I'm 100% yeah. sure of it. And, like, imagine having that sort of knock is like at the start. Unless she Especially... was really sanguine. Unless she was just like, okay, that wasn't the right job for me. And she, you know, but still to go on and be as successful. Well, I think it's fortunate in every sense that she, it didn't define her career. No. That she went on to have great success and do lots and lots and lots of comedies dramas everything like she's been working in she's still working in tv yeah. she, i'm just looking at her imdb and she directed things in 2021 20, 2019 so she's still working as a director um if it had been you know that major of a setback to her career then maybe she wouldn't want to have brought it back up in 2004 but she had already by 2004 reached the point where that was just a blip yeah. and she was a success yeah. yeah, it's said in the documentary but it's not a reflection of her ability like it's just the reflection no. of how much of a nightmare of like technical know how it is to jump into a show like that like it's just not an easy show to work on it's not an easy show to present anyway you know even yeah. the storylines are complicated everything's complicated it was too early in her career that, mm. that was it they gave it to someone who didn't have the 
the the level of experience. When you think about it, it's kind of weird that Paul Jackson recommended her <laughs> at all. <to> be. <laughs> but you know. that was something that I had not really thought about too much before. But when Doug mentioned that, it was like, oh, she came as a recommendation from Paul Jackson. There's two things that were interesting. One, he was blaming Paul Jackson, basically. (laughs) Because it was Paul, uh, because he'd made such good recommendations, we didn't give it the scrutiny that we should have done. So, oh, it was all Paul's fault, was it? (laughs) But also, do you know what it was that Paul Jackson had worked with Juliet May on that led to that recommendation? Can't have been far before... Um, mm-hmm. Was it Hyle Honey, Home? It was Hyle Honey, Home. <laughs> <laughs> she directed Hyle Honey, Home. I was like, right, I've got a job for you. <laughs> Trust me, this one's not a poison chalice. I promise. <laughs> Fuck you, no, I mean, Hitler has been a guest star in it and will be again. But... <laughs> Multiple times, he's very much the seventh dwarf. Or the third, am I right? The third. <laughs> <laughs> Reich dwarf. <laughs> so anyway, we'll come back to heavy science because we're still talking about cast commentary. Yeah, are. sorry. Um, um, you, the, the people that have actually listened to them got any more notes on specifics? Yeah, I got one here. Yeah. You you just need to say Rada and Danny John Jules will soil himself with mirth. <laughs> <laughs> it's just just another complaint about Danny John Jules being really tedious on these, but yeah. There was so. uh, lots of mention of Danny being underlit. Yeah, and lots and lots of mentions of Danny just be like, "Oh, you can only see my teeth." Like I'm just like, "Oh, that's just that's just making that's just awkward as fuck." Like he does address it because he does he does say that like John Pomfrey had like a hell of a like I think it's called the Blue Peter effect, which is where you've got one black presenter and one white presenter. Yeah, and it's like how do you light so that you can balance the two without? Washing it's the first time I'd heard of this at the time, and it's quite interesting. But like, yeah, yeah. it does like. It's not like Danny John Jules to harp on something, but he does harp on this, yeah. But yeah, he does keep mentioning it. Hattie kept mentioning it. He goes, where, where are you, Danny? I can't see you. Like, like She just kept sort of like, just kept prodding him, just going, go on, Danny, go on. Go on, Danny, yeah. It's, it's like, it's worse on Red Dwarf than on anything else as well, because you've got Crichton. That's and the thing, Crichton's, yeah. The colour of Crichton is not the colour of a Caucasian person. <laughs> it's mm. it's bright white. Yeah, it's yeah. an incredible contrast. So yeah, it was and yeah, it's an absolute bloody nightmare. But I don't think I don't think Red Dwarf is underlit or in badly lit at all. Especially not series five. There's another detail here that apparently uh, Rocket and the camera crew called Pomp the Prince of Darkness. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, they did. But I mean I just like yeah. that feels like trench humor to me. That feels oh, like yeah, yeah, the kind yeah. of shit they do when they're just like ribbing each other. Ca- ca- camera run humor. This was the series. <laughs> this was the series where John Pumphrey fell into a lake as well in pursuit of getting his light in the perfect spot. Oh god, yeah. <laughs> Apparently with a lighting rig as well. So like electricity and all the rest. I was like, fuck me, did the man die? He must have died. <laughs> it was nine. It was ninety. He, he got. He got. He got reincarnated as uh, John Pumphrey the White, <laughs> yeah, another... <laughs> <laughs> Prince of Lightness. That's almost in poor taste. But anyway. Uh, I got another one here. So this is I can't even remember what bit this is for. But Robert Llewellyn suddenly saying, "Oh, there's a digger. I've never driven a digger before." Like uh, a (laughs) six-year-old child. (laughs) That reminds me of another fashion sketch: the the businessman who literally get distracted by a digger. (laughs) It's yeah. I mean, I call that the Greg Wallace effect. 
And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't remember what the hell he was. Why was he talking? Yeah, what was he talking about? Was there, there's no diggers in series three. Maybe there was something in the cargo bay. Uh, the, oh, the, maybe fl- yeah, it might be like a yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Just just yeah. the fact he's like, oh, a digger. I've never driven a digger before. I was just like, fuck <laughs> no. Like, I put my headphones on, but I can still hear my son for some reason. <laughs> I bet Chris has driven diggers. I bet he has. I bet it's on the Channel 5 documentary. If diggers do have massive engines, or, then Desi will... Or a low-budget VHS. Massive, massive engines. I like how cagey Chris is because they start ribbing him about his, like, his, his ad work and how he was earning a huge amount of money back then from ad work. Oh, yeah. And they're all saying, oh, do you still do it? And, he, and he's like, well, no, no, I, I've replaced it with other revenue streams. It's not really the place to talk about it. Can I, can I just say, <laughs> it wasn't everyone. It was Danny. Oh, it was okay, right? It was, yeah, like, it was yeah. basically going. How come you don't do that anymore? How come you don't like? But just, it's like, um, <laughs> isn't the received wisdom with Chris is that he he's he, he does quite well in the after dinner circuit. I think so. Yeah. He seems so to I, still... Or did did? I don't yeah. Know I wonder if that was the, the re- as much of a thing. Yeah. Because yeah. you either do adverts or after dinner speaking. That's the big money, right? So yeah. Yeah. If it's a corporate. You know, it's a company dinner yeah. type thing. Then you're making. He's fucking perfect three, for something like three, that. Four hundred quid at least yeah. for an hour's work. Well spoken, funny. You know, can do stand up, do impressions. Yeah. Like he's he's yeah, corporate after dinner speaker's dream. I mean, it's kind of funny that Chris, quite right wing, <laughs> perfect. Quite. Can you imagine Chris in a room full of very rich people? Telling I don't want to see those tapes. I don't. <laughs> yeah. I can very easily. I mean, now it might be a bit more of a problem yeah. because his topics of conversation might be a little bit more extreme. <laughs> oh, it's great to be here today. Of course, uh, the globalist conspiracy nearly prevented me from coming. <laughs> the globalist conspiracy to uh, for the council to spend all its budget in the end of March. Um, <laughs> closed, uh, closed the motorway. So I got one more note, and this is, I think this is Danny that says this or Chris. Danny, you might remember, but be- so easy to get those two. They're talking too. about the handmaidens and whichever one it was that had died soon oh, yeah. after. And was, yeah. uh, the very last, the very last thing that's said in that commentary is said, "Well, she lives on in Red Dwarf, which is the main thing." <laughs> I think it was Chris. I think it was Chris. I think it was Chris, yeah, because uh, Danny didn't know that that had happened. Oh, yeah, so no, he Danny... Was really shocked. Yeah. He was just <laughs> like, I can't smoke she died, and he's like, Danny's like, what? It's like, that's like Alan Partridge at Tony Hare's funeral sort of <laughs> levels, isn't it? <laughs> That's the main thing. <laughs> I'm sure, like, thing. yeah, I'm sure her family <laughs> went dealing. I understand with this, the sentiment. Well, <laughs> yeah, main thing for for those watching, <laughs> which is what really matters. Uh, I can picture that just being Chris realizing that the thing was about to end on a really low point and trying to, yes. in the limited time he had left yes. before the <laughs> credits finished, yeah. and trying trying desperately to reel it back to a positive note. <laughs> I haven't really got any other notes on, on this commentary, really. Well, there is another commentary on this disc, which oh, I yeah. did listen to. Oh, yeah. Because okay. I had to, because, like, it was it was a, just a time issue, and I thought, well, you know, the cast commentary is going to be pretty much more of the same, but fan commentary. At the time when this was announced and everything happened, I was a prick about it. Because at the time of the commentaries being recorded, I would have been just under 18. 
and therefore not eligible oh, to take part. No. And so because I was a petulant 17-year-old cunt, I was just so sneery about the whole thing of, oh, who cares? Like, no sense of fucking self-awareness at all. Of thinking, well, who cares what a bunch of fans have got to say? (laughs) (laughs) I don't... I I think I probably on G&T disguised my contempt as much as I could, but privately and on forums and stuff like that, I was a bellend about it. And I just want to apologise to everyone, <laughs> ever. <laughs> this is a really hard it's video fine. to make, but... <laughs> but it is, I, honestly, I was, I, I kind of remembered being annoyed by it, but I think it's, I think, again, it came from a sort of like, I've got exactly the same note. I said I have a dim view of these at the time, but it was pure jealousy. It looked like a lot of fun, like, like listening to them, kind of just, just, just having a laugh, watching, and like Andrew having to constantly tell people that things were going to be on the the deleted scenes. Like, I remember a deleted yeah. scene when he goes, he goes, it would be on the disc. Just <laughs> I yeah, just... I think that they were each like in like they must have had a briefing before where they were each given a few tidbits mm. to mention so that everyone had a point like. A point to make which would have been obviously researched by andrew and, and sort of divvied up because there was one of them constantly mentioned oh in the script it would originally said this and another one was talking about sets being reused a lot and another person was talking about the th- more thematic things about rimmer's jealousy and yeah. Yeah, all the negativity yeah. coming from rimmer and things like that so yeah it was really well done and well moderated uh i gotta say the highlights uh, pretty much always Andrews. Like it made me think. Ah, uh, I'd really have liked an Andrew commentary yeah, <laughs> on these 100%. because, like, uh, if you're going to do a fan commentary, he is, was, and remains, like the ultimate elevated fan. Yeah. Like this, this him and Seb, and Seb can't do it anymore. So, <laughs> petition starts here for an Andrew Ellard series of commentaries. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And um, what I was most impressed with this is that how, like, how sparky it was because, like. This is a commentary. You can't edit it, and there's just no mm. dead air. And also that they're not really talking over each other too much. It just feels like really high energy. And like at the time, I would have hated every single one of the cunts. But yeah, um, but it just felt it's slightly it felt awkward because I did know one of them, <laughs> <laughs> Ruth Latchford. Yeah, she was a regular on uh, BTLI fan club forums she submitted a lot to better than life did like because she was a cartoonist and she has in fact in the booklet has a cartoon of hers in it oh, okay. that she drew the fan commentary team good stand-up member of the community at the time but for a brief period i was like fuck you how dare you get to be on the <laughs> dvd and of course uh, like two years later no, spo- <laughs> spoilers for two uh, rediscovery discs time but <laughs> we like I, I no longer feel uh, too aggrieved. Uh, hard done by. Yeah. My only complaint is that I found it hard to tell. Again, even though I knew one of them, I find it hard to tell the two women's voices apart because they're both southerners. Yeah. <laughs> At least one of the men had the decency to be Australian. Well, yeah. Yeah. Decency yeah. is an odd word. Shall we head back to disc two and heavy sounds? Yeah, we've talked. We've talked the hell out of the Juliet May section, but that is only the first ten minutes of this yeah. <laughs> a one and a half hour documentary. Oh, it's such a good one. This one, I I, I do like watching yeah. this one a lot. It's I'd forgotten until I saw it. I hadn't forgotten, but it just I'd 
Well, I'd forgotten how much of a difference it makes having clips from the rushes used as yeah. the punctuation yeah. between sections and to you know cover edits and stuff rather than you know it was it was fine using clips from the episodes themselves but a whole other layer to actually be able to illustrate when you're talking about a particular behind the scenes moment to be able to then cut to the full rushes of that thing yes. happening yeah. it's just so good first yeah. time properly as well that we've getting like rushes we'd never seen before yeah. this is again the start of a thread you know that, that it just gets more and more um you know heavily used right up until the the zenith of it yeah body snatcher it's it's now to the point where yeah because series you know we started off series one and two didn't have these types of episode by episode documentaries yeah series three and four did and they were very very good but series three and four now feel like the odd ones out because (laughs) series five took it to such a a whole new height Mm. that was then maintained by six seven and eight and then they went back and did one and two It's almost like I bet there's a part of Ellard that's like, oh, I wish I could go back and just <laughs> redo three, and re-edit, four. <laughs> re-edit three and four, and just add in all these extra, you yeah. know, go back to the rushes of the interviews and of series three Scott and four themselves. If if he's not sick to fucking death of Red Dwarf at this point, <laughs> yeah. no, I mean the best of those bits of rushes that we see is. Craig, don't bugger about. <laughs> <laughs> and then Craig just being a tit about it, just <laughs> like being incredibly dangerous. And he's just like, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever, mate, whatever. It's like, can you imagine what that's like to work with on a fucking daily basis? Uh, Craig said, I was a bit wild like back a... then. Oh, yeah. You he seemed to realise, in 2004, he realised that he was a bit of a balance. <laughs> <laughs> you look back at those rushes. <laughs> Craig. And you've got Robert absolutely shitting himself in the middle of this can't swim. Because he can't swim. Seriously, right? There is nothing more terrifying than being in the middle of a set of water where you can't put your feet down. I mean, he's in a fucking like foam latex mm-hmm. suit what would happen if that got it seemed yeah. like a fucking stone that's why they're <laughs> frogmen the kindly frogmen yeah. yeah he's not he's not built of water wing <laughs> he did have water wings on though too, he did yeah, have water wings on yeah, and i yeah. and part of me wonders if that was actually something for Robert, Robert I think Craig. it would have started as like for Robert's benefit and then it was like actually that looks flashy. I think <laughs> yeah, genuinely, yeah. Keep <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like to fill in, you know, I'm I'm not unfamiliar with uh, risk assessment forms, <laughs> and you do have to write like for any shoot, whether it's studio or location, there has to be a risk assessment form filled in for insurance purposes. For studio, you would have a sort of blanket one that covered everything, and yeah. then if you were doing something extra, something you know, specific. like sparks and explosions and stuff you do a separate one for that but for a location shoot and you have to go through and list every single potential danger no matter how remote the chances are you've just got to demonstrate that you've thought about it so you would put like anything that involves water electrocution is a risk and that's a severe one because the you know the way it's calculated is it's a combination of the likelihood of it happening and the severity of if it does happen so like it's not likely that you'd get electrocuted but if it does happen, Everyone's the person dead. dies. Yeah. So therefore, it's a high risk. Yeah. And like, if it involves water, drowning is definitely a high risk because not likely, but it is fatal. Mm. Yeah. So 
you do then have to put down what steps you're taking to ensure that this doesn't happen. And one of those would be, you know, you'd have trained experts on standby. You have frogmen in the water to rescue people. You'd have first aiders on set, people that are trained in resuscitation techniques, etc., etc. You would also put, and we're going to put water wings on the actor that can't swim, yeah. because that would help for, for insurance yeah, purposes yeah, yeah. should the worst and, happen. And um, <laughs> maybe make the giant columns of flame that come out of the swamp individually controllable maybe so when craig (laughs) charles tries to light a cigarette you could just turn it off (laughs) (laughs) but you know i don't know maybe it was maybe because i think it was i just think one of them did like does dip down yeah when he when they crash into one it goes i wondered whether they went over the top of it it. yeah i went over the top and it was just burning underneath the fucking (laughs) bow i mean like I understand that, like, Robert was telling... But, I mean, Robert is so funny at telling a story and, and, and yeah. the retelling of that on, on, the, on the documentary is just fucking hilarious. Actually, the cutting on this documentary is superb. There are some amazing one-liners that get thrown in. Like when, when Chris is getting oiled and Crichton, uh, fucking hell. When Robert says, um, oh, it made a lot of heterosexuals quite curious, cut to Craig saying, I would have shagged him. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You can just hear Craig just smoothly changing into stand-up gear with certain topics. Can't you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like Vimmer getting action is one of them for sure. Yeah, that's well rehearsed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true though. It's got a point. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, it is true. There is one bit I really enjoyed was um, when they introduced Jack Doherty. <laughs> Danny had completely forgotten that Jack Doherty was in Red Dwarf. But then again, <laughs> Jack Doherty. Is he? <laughs> Danny forgets that, like, which episode is the Inquisitor because he thinks it's the one with the fucking the face, and the, he thinks that's Legion. And yeah, so Danny's memory is <laughs> yeah. not, not not the you know not a good. He's, test he's an unfocused individual. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, no. Oh God, Jack Doherty is so fucking funny. Brilliant, in this. brilliant guest. Yeah, it's just un- the under, dry. Yeah. Like it takes you a little while to tune into the frequency of dryness that he's uh, <laughs> that he's using. And, and I love that he originally pitched Inquisitor as being camp. <laughs> going to expand expand. Yeah, <laughs> that would uh, that would have been ultimately regrettable. I think. Oh yeah, <laughs> would have I think the taken a couple of right. Yeah, yeah. Took yeah. idea for time with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the details that Jack was just really good friends with Robin Doug from Spitting Image Days. Yeah. Uh, Robin Doug had given him and Murray Hunter their sort of big break and getting their first sketches on telly through Spitting Image and remained friends ever since. Yeah, it's just really yeah, nice. it's nice. Yeah, there's definitely some DNA in the whole sort of absolutely crew versus Red Dwarf. There's definitely some overlap. Yeah, yeah. do you know what? There's potential for a uh, commentary there. I think. Ah, oh, excellent idea. Yeah. I love should that. Bit, should that be what we do for this? I think so. Yeah, let's <laughs> put that on the list. Yeah, I, I always love hearing um, how Burden talking about the costume designs and stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Like hearing about the Inquisitor, like the fact that everything apart from the mask was basically reused from another series. So now, now yeah. my brain's going, well, what, 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 what was it? Well, all the other bit, yeah. Bits uh-huh. of, I bet, yeah. I bet you was like the simulant from Justice is quite a bit yeah. of that maybe and yeah that's what he said wasn't yeah. it? bits of simulants and androids yeah. from previous series because to be fair it's... like the, the brief is difficult to explain and he did a fucking amazing job at it oh, they should have just said it's Crichton in the future <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. Crichton's costume Howard Burden is like he's so 
so enjoyable to listen to because he's one of, one of those people that so obviously loves everything about his job that he remembers these little details from something that happened, you know, years and years and years ago. But he's just like, he's just relishing in the fact that, oh, we didn't have much money, so we did this and we did this. We got this from the charity shop and, you know, it turned out really well. And it's just like, yeah, he's really proud of his work. He loves his work. And he's not just saying like, oh, there was no budget. There's only an extra £7,000 in the budget. He's just, yeah, getting it done is just is a joy. That reminds me. <laughs> there are so many things in this where Doug directly contradicts something that another interviewee <laughs> yes. has just said. And it's deliberately edited this, together as well. Yeah. <laughs> this is probably the first time where Doug's interview was recorded after he'd watched the rushes of everyone else's interviews, clearly. Yeah. It's like, okay, if you want to make that point, I will count The start of a slightly bad habit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Mike Tucker, the man, the legend, makes his debut, doesn't he? It's the first time we've done Mike Tucker, but he's replaced Uh, Raggy. Yeah, Yeah, Peter Ragg was in the Series 3 and 4 documentaries, and I have to say, which it struck me at the time, obviously I adore everything about Peter Rag, but putting myself in the position of a non-nerd, they're like just a normal Red Dwarf fan or a normal person buying the DVDs, Mike is a lot more engaging yep. for a viewer. He's less monotone <laughs> in his delivery, basically. Yeah. And he's He is more accessible yeah. as an expert than Peter Rag. He is the most nerdiest of special effects, you know, person that wants all the details. We'll get that from Mike. He's a good storyteller. For me, Mike Tucker is is he's the man. He's my he's my special effects hero from the show. Yeah. Like out out of the ball, D- despite how legendary Raggy is, like Mike Tucker's the man. <laughs> and so it is nice seeing him involved um, more than just this, as we will see. But yeah, yes, there's the the story in this which we've heard in several different places, but I think this is probably like one of the main places. The story about when Hattie was driving home one night. <laughs> and got pulled over for speeding. Really? I've not heard this one. What what, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> well, it just struck me because she said there's two details. One that the other copper came over because he'd looked up the reg and seen that it was Hattie Hayridge and went over and went, oh my God, it is you, it's Holly. And then saw Craig and said, oh, it's Lister. And then saw Jake Abraham and said, it's two Listers. Yeah, were they and in... then, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> it were an assumption has been made. Yeah, and it's, oh, yeah. they were in costume, which is odd. <laughs> I doubt that they were in costume. Yeah. So I think what's happened is that this is just a jokey example of <laughs> the Metropolitan Police being institutionally racist. There, I've said it. Yeah. And also corrupt because they let her go exactly. and she was feeding. She should have been punished to the full extent of the law. Full extent. And the, the, in the commentaries, there's, a, there's various um, examples of such cronyism. <laughs> what was it? Was that, oh, when did when did Danny when did Danny brandish a knife at a bin man? <laughs> it was after this, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah okay. Right. Because he said well, I had an encounter with the police, and I thought, oh fuck, he's gonna like I'd forgotten what he says, like whether he, uh, you know, whether this would be before or after. But this series is very heavy on like carpooling. They were ahead of their time. Like Robert was carpooling with Jane Horrocks. I'm I'm sure that was a a terrible wrench for him. I suppose. I will share a vehicle with Jane Horrocks twice a day. You know, it's hard work, but oh dear. Oh, we'll have to talk and then we'll fall in love and oh, it'll be a pain in the ass, but we'll do it. We'll do the lines. We'll do the lines <laughs> in the cars. 
I think we should rehearse the uh, the <laughs> the sex scene, Jane. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a point. Since we're talking about Jane Hollick's fucking gen, like that they, they talk about her accent in the in the documentary quite quite heavily and like they really harp on it and juliet may may says well the thing is is you know she was terribly northern (laughs) terribly (laughs) terribly northern it's like all right yeah juliet may for as well as she comes across is a bit posh yeah she's a bit posh (laughs) she was disgustingly northern (laughs) (laughs) terrible affliction that she suffered My only other note on Heavy Science was there's a bit where Craig says, I don't know why they never made a toy out of Mr. Flipper. Uh, you could have made a fortune. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Grand Naylor Productions gets idea for <laughs> yeah, Merchandise. Yeah, that same year, was it? it? It was a bit later because, spoilers again, we made our own Mr. Flibble for the movie Yeah, No, Yeah, No. It wasn't available then, which was March Five, 2005, yeah. so it would have been at least a year or so after this. But he's correct that you could make a shitload of money out of it if you happen to keep one in its bag and are now selling it on eBay because they go for so much money. Really? Like, in original packaging, Mr. Blibbles, yeah. Shit. Sorry, we'll just pause this while Danny and Capsi go and check oh, out. <laughs> and their bank balances. I don't have one. I don't have Mr. Flibbles. The one thing I think... Uh, of all the I things can't remember I if I bought, bought one. As a because the Mr. Flibble is not a shit piece of merchandise. I think I might have just spent my hand puppet money on Stufa around that time. <laughs> <laughs> Stufa, who melted on your, on your all, DVD shop. Do you remember shop? when we all got that government grant for hand puppets? For hand puppets, yeah. <laughs> fucking... Just to help yeah. the cost of puppets. Yeah, like in, in... I went for Ed the Duck and <laughs> yeah, I'm regretting it now. <laughs> I do actually have an. Yeah. You also have an emu, don't you? Yes, I've got an emu. Fuck, have you got an emu? Yeah, yeah emus are made. Yeah. That's no joke. They're yeah. massive. It's fucking huge. Massive, <laughs> big. It's a fucking emu. Yeah. <laughs> have you seen that video? <laughs> <laughs> uh, link in the show. <laughs> it's a bloke in some. I think it's Yorkshire, but I can't tell the difference. It's terrible. Uh, a, a Yorkshire town bloke walking along with literally an emu on a leash. I say, hey! What are you doing? You got a fucking ostrich, you cunt. She goes, It's a fucking emu! <laughs> that is a very northern oh, exchange. Apart from bastard. the presence of an emu, that is the one outlier there. Ostrich, you Anyone know or are interested in what the pig related show that Timothy Spall was in? Yes, I want to know. Twas, a TV adaptation of The Tale of Little Pig Robinson by Beatrix Potter. And it looks Aha. shit. But okay, it had Timothy Spall, uh, um, French and Saunders, actually, I've only just realised. Yeah, and it looks like his, his mask does look fairly horrific, to be honest. God, that does look horrible. Gordon Kay, fucking hell, there's like, it's a bit of a cast, to be honest. Prunella Scales. French and Saunders are in full pig gear as well. You don't hear them fucking whinging about it, do you? Toya Wilcox, isn't it? Got 7.6 out of 10 on the ever-reliable IMDb ratings. <laughs> it, it, it's an actual thing, right, isn't it? It's a prosthetics... What's it called? Prosthetics... Is it prosthetic psychosis? Or, like, there's something that, that actors that are wearing prosthetics a lot, it can really start to, like, degrade their mental health, to be honest. Um, mm. And, uh, again, if there is such a thing, there'll be a link in the show notes. But, like... It doesn't seem like, you know, Robert jokes about it, but like we do forget that <laughs> he was very ill in the Promised Land. It's like it's a really like harsh 
thing to go through. Especially something that completely alters your appearance to yeah. to yourself yeah. and others. Yeah, Timothy Spall, that's really interesting, actually. That whole, like, he just fucks up his first take and then yeah, puts in and that we performance see and we see it as well. So he would have had to clear yeah. that, right? Like, he would have had to say, yeah, that's fine, because they had things with Robert Bathurst that they couldn't yeah. include some things, didn't they? Or perhaps there was a difference in the contracts uh, between Series 1 and Series 5, because now you'd just say, we can use anything that we film of you in any way in perpetuity forever, yeah. and everyone would sign that. Yeah. So maybe they'd introduce that by Series 5. But it's just so astonishing to see an actor of the calibre of Timothy Spall just having a bad day. Well, having a bad few minutes at the office and then just absolutely nailing it on the second take. And yeah, committing all the cardinal sins of giving the game away when he fumbles and just carrying on. Because he's never shot in front of an audience before. He's probably done mostly single camera dramas at this stage of his career because i know like avida saint pet was obviously his big break that was multi-camera even though it was non-audience it was a multi-camera drama but in a single camera drama if you do dry you just go sorry and then carry on and that's fine because it's going to be cut to buggery anyway but you just don't do that in front of an audience no you You gotta keep the flow yeah i guess you just don't assume that oh timothy spall isn't going to come in and struggle we just let him Mm -hmm. get on with it or maybe you know you know there should have been a bit of coaching just like you're in front of an audience there's some ground rules for like keeping the atmosphere but you Mm -hmm. know very very interesting but it was back to reality the one that um rob and directed yeah the, yeah, Juliet May did the location stuff, and Robin Doug. By the time it went to studio, Robin Doug were at the helm. Yeah, so that. Oh, so Juliet May where... did the location stuff in Back to Reality. She's credited as SS Esperanto director, which is a very specific credit. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like a one-off credit. That's good as well. Everything Juliet May did, particularly the location stuff, which I guess I don't know, she would have had more time to work on each individual shot on location mm. than she would have done in a studio, yeah. but everything on location is just stunning. It's lush. I, like, even now to this day, to this yesterday when I was watching everything, I hadn't fully appreciated how amazing Terraform looks. Mm. Oh, because yeah. like, I watched it so young and watched it so often and was obviously focused on the dialogue and on the comedy that I just became used to it. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is, yeah, this is Terraform. Yeah. But if you take a step back and like picture seeing it for the first time, Terraform looks so unbelievably good for a 1992 sitcom budget. Yeah. <laughs> it is nuts, it? unbelievable. I think if I was watching Series 5 for the first time, I'd be thinking, God, this isn't very funny, is it? Fucking hell, <laughs> this is shit. Where's all the character humour? Where's all the character humour? <laughs> Yeah, we're talking a lot about five at the moment on on the other the other thread of dwarf casts, and it's like it's interesting. Uh, yeah, to know. we can't Crackers. help it. Like, yeah. yeah, the timelines have crossed over. A little we bit keep doing that. Happen. We did that a lot with the books, and um, what was the thing we were doing alongside the books commentaries? I think we just kept they kept being like little crossovers where we were talking about the same things at the same time. Oh, we've done the books. <laughs> yeah, do you not remember? No. <laughs> the next thing after heavy science is the deleted scenes. Okay. And um, one of the deleted scenes is of the opening scene of Demons and Angels, which was completely redone on the day after the rap party. Right, okay. And what is astonishing from that is, like, there are tweaks to the dialogue, um, like the writing changes little bits and bobs, but mostly it's the same stuff. 
but the performances are so much better in the in the version that was used like streaks ahead mm. miles ahead in the version that was used but that was the one that was shot with everyone hung over and tired and pissed off about yeah. being there not wanting to be there yeah. with no audience to bounce off how is that one so much better than the one they did under normal they circumstances? Have time to, they have time to breathe it, I suppose. I say, I find yeah. it weird that, like, Doug, you know, when when Doug's, you know, recounting a conversation he had with the cast, saying, like, oh, do you not remember? You know, we've got massive holes everywhere. Like, you know, things don't work. We've mm. got we've got to shoot these. It's weird that they did seem to have the time to like, because it seems to me that reshooting that first scene, as necessary as it ended up being, feels a bit like a luxury. Mm. It's not something you'd prioritise over things that you're actually missing. Especially um, considering it's got the actually effect work and stuff in there as well. Yeah, yeah. You'd think, oh, well, we can live with that. It was obviously mm. more of like a Robin Doug being perfectionists because they probably could have put together a good series. It was probably eating away at them yeah. for all that time as well. Like thinking, oh, shit, like, we've got... Because the, you know they shot Demons and Angels first. Mm. Presumably the intention was to put it out first. Because yeah. they do talk a little bit about the order of episodes when they decided to put Back to Reality last. But presumably they wanted Demons and Angels to be earlier in the series than it was originally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would have just been eating away at them for the last five weeks of like, ah, oh, it's a shame that you know the opening episode has, has got this clunker in it. Yeah, that's maybe where Juliet's biggest struggles were. Yeah, it's, the earliest days. Yeah. It's weird because it looks like rehearsal footage. It doesn't even look like that's the finished product. Mm. It looks like this is just general, you know, we just tried to see how it would kind of go. Yeah, we'll just try it out. Yeah, it's interesting. Some interesting creative decisions as well, like the kind of the the look. Do you know? It feels much more like Red Dwarf USA that beginning scene, and I can't really tell you what it is about it, but just mm. there's something very American in the style of the way that is shot. That I think it's just the sort of lots of POV stuff at the camera rather than just like the camera being part of the scene rather than, you know, it's like almost like White Hole starting. That original version of the scene does solve a continuity problem <laughs> later in the episode because there's a point somewhere in the episode where Crichton says, when I threw the triplicator into reverse, yeah. blah, 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 blah. In the episode, it's not him that throws the triplicator into reverse, it's Lister. Uh, but in the deleted yeah. scene, uh. in the original version of the shoot, it was Crichton. <laughs> uh, okay. Ruined. Also, they do make mention of the, um, the, the, the things that last long. Reference later on as like, a, oh, that's a problem. We need to, you know. Yeah, we'll, something we'll, we'll yeah, like yeah. A... Not as established in the final episode. Interesting. And slight tweaks to Hattie's. Like instead of voice recognition unicycle, it's voice recognition Eugene O'Neill, yeah. <laughs> which, which is all right, but not as good. No, it's not as punchy. <laughs> yeah. Has anyone ever done Holoship Extended? Yes, they have. John. John did it for G and T. It's been We've twenty years, We've man. I've forgotten. It's fine. We've done a lot. I've slept since. Right. Okay. Well, link in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> the Simpsons did it. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> Interestingly, the rushes for the Inquisitor and DNA have gone. Uh, D- <laughs> That's my fault. Reading for the notes, D and A, demons and angels, oh, yeah. <laughs> have gone missing at some point. Yeah, uh, because they only have VHSs of the. You know, yeah. so those are like offline VHSs edits that, like, what they dump at the end of the day to review, or not offline edits, but oh. offlines of the output of the vision mixer yeah. is what I would assume. Yeah. Cool. On the night, oh, so that right, they can go right. home and watch it. Yeah, it's it's cool. I I love the fact that the original wishes went missing just so we have like some nice time codes. Because who doesn't <laughs> like a nice time code? Really, you know. 
I don't all speak up at once, fucking hell. <laughs> Michelle Platini. No, that's the real one. Hercule Platini. <laughs> Air-cooled Platini. Air-cooled Platini, yeah. yeah. What the, uh, the hell was he thinking? <laughs> oh, you learned about the Ubermensch? Is this the... Is this the yeah. yeah, this is a, yeah. Uh, Not just the Ubermensch, but everything. Like, he comes across... Like, he doesn't come across as hammy overacted in the finished episode because they edited it's very good judicious editing yeah. but some of the choices that he was making on the night <laughs> well ludicrous if i if i if you allow me to go back to the commentaries actually because the, the robert especially goes on about uh, robert and danny going on about how he's very similar to agent smith obviously agent smith is way after <laughs> this episode mm. but isn't it really really fucking obvious that he's doing captain kirk Shatner. Yeah. He's doing Shatner, yeah. He's almost like taking that to like the nth degree with these deleted scenes, and it is. You're right. It's just utterly insane. It just doesn't fit in the Red Dwarf of the time. Yeah. Like it's it too probably parody. would fit into the Dave era, yeah. <laughs> to be yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah. Like being that little bit broader. Mm-hmm. But at the time, Red Dwarf was never parody science fiction. No. You play the situation straight yep. and then lay the jokes. And on the top. rest of the Holoship crew, to be fair, fucking nail it. Like they're all brilliant. Yeah. They're just straight laced. I mean, none of their lines are particularly funny anyway. But like you know, they're not hamming it up. They don't. You know, mm. they seem to have respect for. They're them. not. Yeah, it seems like he was. And I've I've met and worked with this guy by the way, Matthew Marsh. Yeah. Uh, so I won't I won't say anything bad against but him. He but he fucking hates him, listeners. Honestly. <laughs> Never shuts up about it. He was clearly thinking, I'm in a sitcom, I need to make this funny. Mm. Whereas it's quite a straight role. Yeah. He's, you know, yeah. he's not there to be funny. He's there to allow Chris Barry to be funny. Mm. Basically. Almost like how Hollister started versus how he ended up. Yeah, um, he went the opposite direction. Yeah. Well, that's down to Mac being a comedy actor. It's, it's a very... Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. But it, I mean, he did the straight role like originally. But I think that's one of the hardest things to effectively do in comedy is pitch your performance in a way that creates room for other uh, Yeah, it's a, it's a thankless task, yeah. really, to be... It's being the straight man. It's being the... Unless, unless you're one ways. of the celebrated straight men, in which case, like, yeah, I think yeah. the, the overcorrection has happened, like, Ernie, you know, Ernie Wise or, you know... I was going to say Bob Mortimer. Bob Mortimer isn't... There's no straight man in Reeves and Mortimer. No, there's no straight <laughs> man. <laughs> Maybe. The... But I do remember thinking at the time of shooting stars that Vic was the funnier of the two, but now I'm completely changed my yeah. opinion on that. Yeah. But that's just because Bob is just so awesome. Yeah. Anyway. The Inquisitor, we have the whole scene with Jack showing Jack's his face, face for the entire of the... Very unusual... You're giving me my gauntlet back. It becomes <laughs> it becomes way too human and colloquial yeah, in that bit. Yeah. The the fact he's faceless is is a is a plus for, for that character. Yeah, um, that whole yeah. scene is is shot weirdly as well. It's a very low angle on everything because like the entire scene, like right up to you know, give you fifteen, and it's like it's it's almost up Craig's nose. So like yeah. presumably that was reshot in the exact yeah. same set. That, that that can't have been reshoot day because you'd have to get Jack back. But it just feels like something they would and have picked up location, later. Oh, it is on location. Mm. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's was it. Jack in the suit when they did that reshoot? Oh, mm. yeah. Doesn't have to be. Just use the dialogue. Mm. Well, he clearly ADR'd a lot of his. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. So maybe all of it. They yeah. could do that. And I'm yeah. glad they didn't go with the shouting because it sounded awful. Yeah. Yeah. It did. <laughs> yeah. What would you rather right. have, camp, camp or shouting? If you had to. <laughs> Why not both? <laughs> yes. That's the correct answer. And yeah, there was actually two lots of deleted scenes from series five that involved a rather creepy looking face being revealed oh, yeah. that mm. ended up being cut. Because there's the dead Rimmer from Terraform as well. Which I'd conflated because I thought that when the Inquisitor... I thought died. you saw the Inquisitor die and you saw the mask come off and he had that face and I realised it's actually not. It's just it's Rimmer's from, from Terraform. So the, impl- the implication being underneath the hoods, they all look like Rimmer. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite... It's, it's Rimmer world. It's like, quite a thought. Yeah. yeah. But that means that, you know, by rights, the Handmaidens should have had the face of Chris Berry as well. <laughs> well they did again, that in the end. Yeah. that for Rimmer world. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the um, Terraform and the self-loving beast, I actually, like, slightly disappointed <clears> that um, the shot of it talking wasn't, wasn't used because actually the way that the angle works and the way that was shot is actually really effective and it doesn't look... It doesn't look bad at all. It's no. like maybe when it was moving, yeah, but like the 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 idea of having like the esophagus move, the throat is as, the thing that's yeah. it's yeah. fucking brilliant idea. Um, and I think yeah, I think that looked really good. But maybe it's because in the order that I watched it, I watched the SFX first, had an appreciation for like the amount of work that went into it and the idea of yeah. it, and then I saw the deleted scene. So it was like, yeah. yeah, I wish I wish we'd see more, but it's not what you leave in; it's what you take out. And another Terraform deleted scene is <laughs> notable for two reasons. Rimmer and his little plan to send Crichton out in a Rimmer mask and wear, wear my uniform, the one with uh, AJ Rimmer uh, written on it. Yeah. A, that's what he does in Cassandra with Warden Knot. <laughs> that's the exact same gambit, the same plan of cheating death is to yep. trick death into thinking you're someone else. And B, that deleted scene is the origin of Captain Bollocks. Ah. Because it's an unused outtake from that scene. Uh, is I then order you to don my uniform, the one with, oh, bollocks. Ah. Oh, I love that one. Captain, Captain Bollocks. bollocks. <laughs> of course, yeah. Yeah. What if Doug realises that he was referencing like a smeg up? Oh, if it was just oh. a complete yeah, answer. Yeah, we've talked about this Here before when um, <laughs> when Give and Take came out. But yeah. Whether it was a deliberate reference to an unused outtake or whether that's just our minds. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Just everything, like, we've absorbed all of this throughout decades and so we make the yeah. connections. Oh, and another one. In quarantine, they have to think of a plan without thinking of it. Reminded me a little bit of Skipper, mm. yeah. uh, of where they have to decide the opposite of what they actually want to do in order to have that happen Fucking it's kind of the same such a good scene <laughs> fuck me just for thinking about it it's amusing me i've got two more notes on deleted scenes and one of them is just the, the lion as much chance as a let in an elephant yes <laughs> that's in the book yes it is in the book isn't it and also what what elevates that is i don't know if it's craig trying to remember his line but it reads to me as Lister desperately just trying to think of something like funny and shocking. It's like more chance than a letting an elephant, and it it's it, it's really good, really good. That's always one of the ones in the books that always makes me crazy because it's just it's so ridiculous. It yeah, and it's the in an elephant, like <laughs> yeah. and, and ending it at elephant <laughs> is what makes it funny. It's the way it reads. It's the la 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 la. It's a very <laughs> the, the cadence is that yeah. It's great. It's You're letting well. an elephant back to truck. <laughs> <laughs>
Similarly, there's a deleted scene from Hollow Ship where Rimmer says, I'd rather do X, Y, and Z whilst giving oral sex to an orangutan of dubious hygiene. Yeah. That's also in yeah. Infinity, is it? Yeah. yeah. My question, yeah. is there any orangutan that has non-dubious <laughs> personal hygiene? I would well, argue no. It depends how you're judging them. If you're judging them by human standards, then their hygiene is all low. But <laughs> in terms of orangutans, there could be wow. You know, people so he would orangutans with better and yeah, worse the hygiene. Orangutans, than other orangutans tend to clean and wash themselves. It's just that you have an orangutan who doesn't seem to know a lot about so, um, yeah. orangutan personal hygiene. Danny. <laughs> I'll not lie to you. When I was a kid, I used to be obsessed with uh, orangutans and primates and macaques. Oh, interesting. I'll, I'll, I've just macaqued my pants. I, I loved my cats and, and my dogs. Well, when that's I when I kid. first realised that animals could be gay because I heard that macaques often had uh, female pairs. Ah, interesting. And that was the first time I ever sort of learned about same-sex pairings. So there you go. Fun fact. Funny macaques. Fucking now monkeys are woke, are they? <laughs> I can't believe we haven't mentioned this deleted scene yet. From um, Back to Reality. Oh, that one. Oh, that the one. deleted scene. The one that, Which like, the game over one with the, oh, the weird, the weird yeah. effect. Now, we were really excited about this before release. This is one of those things where it's like, okay, all the Hollowship deleted scenes, because that was legendary at that point. Like, Hollowship went to 40 minutes and we wanted to see all the deleted scenes. Yeah. And this particular thing, which was highlighted in a DV Details article, I think, before it was released. It's like fucking hell. That that looks interesting. If if a bit of a failure. And also, Back to Reality was one of the episodes in Primordial Soup, and that scene was detailed in Primordial ah. Soup. But we were always picturing, you know, what do they mean? Because it just said Sprite Lister, Sprite Crater. Yeah, yeah. I think also, did it do that in the book where it all of a sudden the the, the, the um in when they get out of better than life, the, the, the game over words appear above their heads before they go. Yeah. So it's like a lot of these little seeds and stuff were all there just in different guises. I mean, yeah, they was... weren't looked at, I don't think they look like little sprite versions of themselves. I can't remember that being in the book, but that mm. could be in that could be, I can't remember. It feels like it was an idea and they tried to do it in camera, like almost entirely rather than like, you know, the video effects that they, that they had. It doesn't, I don't know, maybe they, it just feels like if it had gone through the full production process, there could have been something mm. that they could have done, even in 92, where they could have done a better approximation of, of sweat. You could have done an animation. <sighs> yeah. I think, yeah, I think the mistake was probably trying to incorporate the, the real actors yeah. into it rather than, I mean, I say mistake, but, you know, the opposite and, uh, you know, the one that they actually used of a similar idea was the bloody claymation thing in Back true. in the Red, and that was a big part of shit. But, yeah, to do a, you know, Mega Drive, it would have been Mega Drive SNES era yeah. graphics at that time. Yeah, but, like... That would have been cool to see. I mean, you know, if anyone wants to recreate... It wants to have a go at making a sprite set. Let us know. Some of my favourite fan art in Red Dwarf is when someone goes like super eight bit or even four bit. There's some like incredibly chunky pixel versions of the characters that just look brilliant. Like I love really low fidelity pixel art that just has to do a lot of heavy lifting to like Atari twenty six hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucking like yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, sort of like so. being able to get Lemmings expressive by, with a high. Yes. Oh, yeah. The like the animation in Lemmings is like a gold standard for that. Like just being able to communicate so much 
um, in like so how many pixels? <laughs> 20 I think it's pixels 11, 11 pixels high, I think it's, 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 a, yeah, I think it's right. a trade-off. Yeah. So maybe like 30-odd pixels per lemming to play That's with. Crazy. Great yeah. for cross-stitch. Yeah. <laughs> this is exactly the sort of thing I want to see in the deleted scenes, like swing and a miss. It's it's it's, it's yeah, rubbish, yeah, yeah. but who cares? We want to see the failures. Yeah, exactly. This is the really interesting stuff, and I think it's it's almost like, it. well, look what you could have got. So just appreciate yeah. what you've got, yeah, because basically they're fantastic. It, it gives you an appreciation of the process because there's very rarely that you look at a delete scene and think, oh, I could have done with that being in, because at the end of the day, series True. five is fucking paced so well, and this is yeah. the reason why because very <laughs> hard decisions were made about cutting stuff out. I would say that there are two scenes in the deleted scenes or two moments that are well worthy of, you know, comedically uh, well worthy of being in a Red Dwarf episode. But in both occasions, you can see why they were cut yeah. and it's just for pacing and time. Yeah. The first being Hattie's only joke in series five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The bit in Hollow Ship where Rimmer runs in and she has a one sided conversation and is very, very, very funny with it. But obviously. At that stage of the Put episode the of ship, you can't pause it for thirty seconds to do a joke. And the other one is in Back to Reality, where it's Rimmer trying and failing to tell a joke. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, perhaps you'd have chosen not to do the comedy East Asian accent unless you were making fathers and sons. But other than that, everything about Rimmer trying and failing to tell a joke is just fantastic. Yeah. But when you're at that stage in the episode where they're running away from peril and you want to get to back to reality world as soon as possible, you don't want a 30-second hold-up there. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't he do and something similar in Back to Earth? Yeah, he does. It's a very similar setup of the three tangible ones at that stage going and exploring and Rimmer staying behind and coordinating and watching things on monitors. In Back to Earth, he doesn't tell a joke. He reads them from his car magazine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's another good cut as well in Terraform, when the the line where he says there's been a terrible cock up. Your staff have somehow mistaken me for a virgin, and that like crash cutting into like the beast shouting him to shut the fuck up. Basically, is so good in the episode. Whereas the deleted scene is like it. He just it just series eights a little bit. And I like yeah, that. Yeah. That just having the the foresight of just saying let's just cut it at virgin, and, and that will be this great like this very funny line and then it goes stop your foul white yeah it just it's an astonishing series it is the most impressive series of all of red dwarf purely because it could have been a disaster and they made just this gold out of out of lightning lightning in a bottle i think yeah yeah not not that there weren't lightning in future episodes or even past episodes it's just the fact that series was consistently good yeah it had no every episode is an absolute steamer of an idea yeah. Uh, it comes to something when episodes of the quality of Terraform and Demons and Angels are like the worst ones in that series. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. I used to always think I didn't like Terraform, and then when you watch it, you're like, why the fuck do I? Terraforms. Like it? it starts amazing. It's yeah. got an amazing starting joke. It's got like. Oh yeah, it's that got starting an unbelievable joke. Unbelievable fucking thing with Crichton, and the, like it just looks amazing. I mean, the the problem with it is the lack of POV shots. That's the only thing. <laughs> it turns out she didn't know what a fucking camera was. <laughs> She thought we were all really going to swing. Yeah, and then Danny's like, oh, yeah, mate, yeah, pony. And then everyone laughed pony and went rada. to the pub. <laughs> pony rada, ham, hair. Oh, 
have to change my fucking password again. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they say. You should have three, three unconnected words it's together. Like battery staple again, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, probably the most interesting set of deleted scenes we've had yet. Uh, unsurprisingly, and the lengthiest. Mm. I mean, it just shows like you got that many deleted scenes. You've had a hell of a post production, haven't you? Like mm. something, something's got a bit awry, but it's fucking. But you've saved fantastic. It, yeah. it feels also that Doug was trying to argue the fact that Red Dwarf could have had longer episodes. Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. Like he was trying to say Forty Towers. I know that it, obviously like, Forty Towers is a bit of a weird sort of. I don't know what decisions were made in those days. Obviously, there was less. Yeah, I mean that was the seventies. This schedule. is the nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next on the list is Smeg Ups. But I didn't bother watching that. I didn't actually watch that. This is the sort of, the sort of uh, high quality content you come to expect from Academy's uh, Titan. Well, according to my review, um, there is nothing notable about these. <laughs> like, there are no smokers. major omissions, nothing new, nothing that's missing that should be there. So it's, yeah. it's fine. Well, that's lucky. Well, the next one is Dwarfing USA. Yes. Yeah. The greatest, possibly the best thing on a Red Dwarf DVD yeah, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, close. And in fact, I did I did do a high and low of DVD extras and I can't remember where I put it, but it's got to be top two or three. It's just so good. It's so thorough. I mean, obviously, like, going through this magazine rack, we've kind of realised how, how fucking present and foremost the uh, Red Dwarf USA was known about to everyone else mm. but me. <laughs> but yeah, the Red Dwarf USA is fascinating because it is just... Yeah, and that's the thing. So I bet there's stuff in there that people didn't even know at the time either. But just like this is my first proper see of what this fucking thing was, and the fact that we got these gorgeous quality clips mm-hmm. of the actual show, and it's yeah. it's so weirdly uncanny, and it's it's just it's brilliant. A- isn't it very, interesting? Very candid. Yeah, it, it was groundbreaking at the time. We were stunned that it was so, like Craig being incredibly honest about his feelings about it. Yeah, like he felt betrayed. I mean, Craig, Craig comes across as still at that stage, you know, twelve years later, even though it's clearly dead. He comes across really bitter about it. But I don't mean that as a criticism no. because I completely understand yeah. why he was bitter about it. Because you know, imagine that if he'd been told properly rather than having to find out accidentally from Andrew. Yeah, yeah. Him and Danny, the two people who have been in the show the longest aside from Chris and for them to not to have been even considered never mind ass that must have felt yeah. like a, a twist of a knife at that point I can imagine how that must have felt especially the optics of the two uh, black ones not being invited and the two white ones being invited yep. and you know and you know Doug again Doug probably saw other people's comments yeah, before recording definitely. his own because he did address that and say like there was no there was no element of that from Doug's side I can believe that but from the American side mm. I couldn't tell you but even if there is not a deliberate attempt to get rid of all the black people then the fact that that's what they did do and no one noticed mm. or flagged it as being a problem is an example of unconscious bias I get the impression that the casting for the second one was Robin Doug like almost 100 percent yeah because the way they talk about it is that we tried to get you know like they had the whole power to to put something together they were operating yeah. on their own pretty much at that yeah. point weren't they? yeah but yeah but the level of detail about the fuckery <laughs> is something that is new here and wasn't in this magazine mm. like all the stuff about how Robin Doug went over and 
um, they wrote a script overnight yeah. to completely rewrite it, and then like did some Machiavellian like seeding of it amongst the <laughs> cast and saying, "Oh, have you heard about this other script? Oh, yeah. Well, they don't want you to see the other script, <laughs> and like just waiting for that to trickle through." It endears it's me amazing. to the American like, cast yeah. as well. Like immediately, like I like them all because of because of how on board with Rob and Doug they were, and yeah, they weren't yeah. like they weren't affected by all the like the machinations probably because actors are quite powerful aren't they in america so um yeah yeah they clearly realized that rob and doug on a creative level were head and shoulders above everyone else there and that's no disrespect to linwood boomer who had great success before and after but rob and doug are just on a whole other level um and they clearly realized that i I also like how they were so deferential towards robert (laughs) And and treated Robert as like the leader, or yeah, like yeah. the least, the really, the the person <laughs> that would least put themselves forward as a leader yeah. amongst like, you, you can't imagine someone like Craig Bierko being a wallflower, but <laughs> but Robert Llewellyn very much can be. He's the one connection to the original idea, so it's like they're yeah. gonna glom onto that guy, like yeah, yeah. they're gonna be like, yeah. well, yeah, what's yeah. it like? What, what's it like for you guys? What, what should we do? Yeah, yeah, how do we do this? You you know how this works. You know how this you know this whole system is. How how would you do it? And like normally in America, they would have those kind of levels of involvement. In America. Even as a an actor, you'd have a bit more involvement, or like at least you know. You'd be sort of elevated a bit higher than maybe. Well, actors end up the, the the natural the natural course of things is actors start directing episodes. I mean, it's a few years into a show, yeah. and then they start producing, or they're executive yeah. producers. Executive like producing. It, exactly. it, it's like yeah, actors really do get raised up quite a lot, so they're they're a big part of the whole process, and obviously paid mm. the most as well. Um, it's weird that the story about the script thing is a bit like like listening to it this time it was kind of so the whole story is eventually they get like all the cast vote on using rob and doug's script but then the little coda to that is but then some weird things happened and it, they ended up using a lot of the shit script and mm. i kind of took it like no one else really none of the actors particularly have mentioned that part of it and it makes me think like <laughs> I don't know, like it's a bit of a weird, like convenient. Oh, but it turned out bad. But they didn't use our, like, you know, they used well, used the rubbish script. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't, I don't know. It would have been better if they'd have used our script, basically. Yeah, yeah. like they, you can't finish the story of we triumphed. They used our wonderful script, and then we go, oh well, hang on a minute, it wasn't Red Dwarf USA shit? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's weird. But yeah, yeah, I agree with so much of what Doug says when he rebuffs some of the the bog standard criticisms about you know craig Bierko specifically yeah. of like oh that doesn't work because you know lister's not like that and he said well he can yeah, be like that. you just need like to write that. it a yeah. bit differently yeah. tailor yeah, the script just tweak yeah, it exactly yeah it's like it's like michael scott stop writing michael scott as david brent and then you have one of the greatest yeah. sitcom characters ever created you know well in america anyway don't do it like note for note you know, you've got Crichton coming in in the first episode. That's one of the strongest aspects of the whole Red Dwarf USA because it's different. And yeah, they did praise the bits of Red Dwarf USA that deserve praising as well yeah. because it is not all terrible. No, it's not. And they did highlight that Doug said there was some good... No, there were some great one-liners yeah. in there. Yeah. 
and like the fire exit sign being the example that they gave. Yeah. And, uh, I do actually like, you know, in some countries that's considered a delicacy. Uh, quite, it's just Munson shouldn't have existed. That shouldn't have been Munson. That should have been Rimmer. Yeah. The character of Rimmer should have been the character of Munson. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you'd have just kept that dynamic, then that, I think that would have worked really well for America. That would have yeah, had Rimmer be a bit more of a wise cracking. In Niles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all, all mouth and no action. Do you know what I mean? It's like that. That's exactly yeah, what Rimmer is. He is all yeah. mouth and no action. Um, but in an American style, that 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 reads differently. But then that's the sort of thing that naturally kind of like develops when, you, like, because American adaptations, even the ones that work, and God, we've said this over like ad nauseum at this point, but like they always start off a bit weird because they're they're always a bit too beholden to the original. Um, and then they eventually find their feet. So, like, it is unfair, you know. To, and Doug's really like, like when he's talking about the second pilot, he's like, it was never intended for it to be stolen and viewed. <laughs> and then, funnily <laughs> enough, the caption came up oh, we were unable to get any clearance for the second one. Either that or Doug just said, we're not showing any fucking clips of that second no. one. <laughs> Well, you're, you're veering into well, conspiracy well, territory. Listen, <laughs> Doug Naylor can't melt steel beams <laughs> or something. I don't know. <laughs> the uh, the clearance situation was useless by design. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one thing that is missing from this, and it's unfortunate, but obviously I don't know how much input they'd be able to give, would be talking heads from the people who actually were involved with the actual USA. It'd be nice to have heard Craig, yeah, Linwood Boomer, Craig Bierko. That'd be really nice to just have a couple of those. Maybe, maybe there's a sequel in the works where you could make a. In terms of the way that this DVD was put together, all the stuff about Red Dwarf USA was recorded alongside uh, the main Heavy Science documentary. There's no one that takes part in this that isn't in that. It's just like clearly we got you know they recorded Heavy Science and then said oh we've also we want to talk about Red Dwarf USA Mm -hmm. and recorded you know an extra ten minutes with everyone about that. Um, And what makes it. You know what makes it its own thing rather than an extension. You know it could have been a segment at the end of yeah. uh, Heavy Science yeah. where they said, "Oh yeah, we filmed it," and then Red Dwarf USA happened. Blah blah blah. Ten minutes on it, brilliant. But having the clips, the actual full quality clips, it's just it's still to this day takes me because I've <laughs> I've watched the you know 80th generation VHS dubs yeah. so many times. <laughs> And still default to those just to see it in that amount of clarity is still a thrill yeah, to this yeah. day. Oh, isn't it interesting that Todd Rundgren's music is still sounds sounds still sounds like weirdly distorted in a way like I thought that was because of the VHS generation. So no, the, no, it's, but it's still like you thought it was just there. terrible wow and And he's brilliant as well. Like he's another fucking genius that is just like what the fuck. How did that come from Todd Rundgren? There's there's a genre of music now called tracking core, which right. is um, music that's been mangled through a VHS no. converter. It's like yeah. music version of pixel fucking. Yeah. Data moshing, but with audio yeah. moshing. Yeah, yeah. It's like, do you remember that, um, I forget which series of Big Brother it was, but the opening titles featured uh, f- like free view uh, artifacts. Yeah. The problem is, is that that was during the era where I would watch Freeview, so it really fucked me up every single time I saw the <laughs> the credits for it because it looks like the Freeview box is losing signal. Series seven, two thousand and six. Right. Thanks God. Well, that's exactly what I was watching Freeview. Dwarfing USA is officially 
officially mined the third best DVD extra, according to Ian Sims. Me? Yeah. Shit. And the tenth best is one that we're probably going to talk about in a minute. In a minute. In a yeah. minute. But I have another note on Dwarf in USA. They were talking about when Chris was offered and he was scared off because of the contract situation and Doug pointing out that you know he was completely wrong about the contract situation. Doug says he was very badly advised, putting the entire blame on Chris's agent. Who's Who was Chris's agent? Who was Chris's <laughs> agent at the time, boys and girls? It was Charles. Doug's business partner, Charles <laughs> old, Armitage. Old Charlie A. And obviously... Their relationship remained perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that was clearly a troublesome relationship for quite a while, wasn't it? What's bizarre is that Charles would have been across this DVD yeah. <laughs> and and would have presumably seen that criticism of him and signed it up. So fair play to Charles, I guess. Yeah, maybe Charles would just give a fuck. Probably rich enough not to care. <laughs> but yeah, because I, I thought that. At the time, I was like, well, hang on a minute. Wasn't like basically everyone represented by Noel Gay at this point? And then, well, obviously, Charles was the, the main agent. <laughs> anyway, it's yeah. yeah. one of the main reasons was Chris said, well, this is the problem. You have to sign for a six-year contract. And if it's a bad contract, then you have to start again from scratch when you finish and you come back to the UK. So like, why is your agent saying, well, you might get a bad contract when it is their job to get you a good contract? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I would do it, mate, but you can't fucking drive me again. I mean... <laughs> no more thought you go bad deal, will it? <laughs> Tell you yeah. what, though, you fucking take it, you come back here, you start from scratch. You start from scratch, mate. <laughs> I know that in the Man in the Room of Master, uh, Robert, I know this is crying again, Robert mentions like uh, the fact that the contracts are, you know, like, that he was kind of worried about them being... Uh, stiffed mm-hmm. over or like they're making a bad deal but... well i wonder why he was worried about being stiffed over by a contract because they they i think they had just been stiffed over by a contract hadn't they with the vhs's oh yeah yeah, yeah. um maybe they didn't know that they'd been stiffed at that yeah point, maybe right? i think that might maybe yeah later 90s but i guess you've always got to fight your corner right you've always got to be careful not to not to be walking into a situation where you're too naive and you just get fucked. Especially like being signed into a contract in America almost feels like you know you're putting your hands in the life, you know, your life in the hands of the mafia or something. You know what I mean? Like like a, a, this machine that mm. doesn't particularly care about your well-being <laughs> mm. or your life. You know, it can feel a bit like that if it's kind of alien to you. It's called an industry for a reason. But Robert played the lottery and he won. <laughs> he won his gamble. Went over, got paid thousands of dollars at some really good craft services and then fucked off home and went back to his normal yep. life. Only other note on Dwarfing USA is that Doug, uh, whilst defending himself against accusations of uh, unconscious racism, uses the phrase yellow people. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know whether or not I want to include that in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Just not open that kind of thing. His, uh, his defence of that is a little bit like, I mean, in the years since, it's the sort of thing you'd expect to hear from someone arguing in bad faith the, the whole like um oh well why have they cast a black woman as ariel or something it's like well you should just cast the best person for the job where and it kind of ignores ignores the fact of positive representation and how important positive yeah. representation is yeah. um to readdress balances and stuff like that so it's a bit of a naive thing but like i it's not doug's fault that it that argument has since been twisted in all sorts of ways yeah, I yeah. But, and also specifically with the casting of terry farrell to, you know to replace hinton battle it was who could they get yeah. 
yeah. who was available. Because yeah, everyone was I'm in sure if pilot season. Was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure if there was another option they would have explored. And also it. Rob and Doug were just like, Well let's do something a bit different and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. I tell you what, it shows balls on the on the on the, the side of Rob and Doug because if I was in their position I wouldn't want to change much. They seem quite up for having a go at kind of quite you know, quite drastic changes to a to a script in order to achieve a goal. That's just sign of a good writer, I suppose. I guess if you if the intention was to continue doing the British show and the American show, then you might as well change it because you're not you're not wrecking anything that you've established. You know, like you know your British version works. Yeah. So let's try something different for the American Fair version. Point, yeah. But I don't know if, and I doubt that. If the American version had gone ahead, then the British version would have carried on. Mm. Yeah, like, that seems to be the conclusion. Um, you know, so I think it's Craig towards the end says that you know if Red Dwarf USA had happened, then they wouldn't have come back and done six, seven, and eight. Yeah. And maybe if I if know. there was someone hovering about, like if let's say Paul Alexander or James Hendry was was in the fold during the Robin Doug area, like on the peripheries, then the, there would be a natural succession plan. But since there was no, unless mm. one of them took UK, one of them took US, or neither of them bothered with US. Mm. And the, and they... Yeah, I'd say the, the most money. effective way of doing it, yeah, would just be to yeah. take your cheque and let the Americans write the American series. Yeah. Yeah. But, you have to write Crichton out. But. Yeah, but then if you're Robin Doug and everything that we know about Robin Doug, are you going to hand over that control? No. Especially after the experience that they just yeah. had of... The, you know the brain suits doing their fake laughs and we're going to be so rich guys and all that. Yeah. They would. Oh well, that's true. Doug does say it's like, oh, is that why we're here to be rich? So like, they, yeah, clearly. Also, <laughs> series five was a perfect example of this is what will happen to a series if we don't get involved with it, yeah, yeah. as well. Yeah. Mm. So that will have been the perfect storm of had Ed By done series five, maybe the American one would have felt in better hands if they'd have. You know, left left it alone. But yeah. Because there was like this new change that happened at the wrong time when they were trying to get this show working, and it was like we're too busy to get this. Like we can't concentrate on another thing. We can't even get our yeah. own show correct without you know having to like be involved at every step of the way and damn near kill themselves. It certainly makes a lot of sense. It's just like yeah, they've got no solid handle on the show at home. It's clearly very important to them, yeah. and then yeah, so. Yeah. I can't see I can't see Rob or Doug allowing other people to do, you know, Red Dwarf yeah. without supervision yeah. or at least some level of control where, yeah. you know, final creative output, whatever. But if you look at like Amanda Anucci, it took it took him four years, I think, to hand over Veep to a kind of a trusted new uh, showrunner. And it, I, I think it's just because he, you know, he's from the British tradition of, you know, having that that don't you know that kind of head writer role just remembered <laughs> um in better than life magazine issue 8 from autumn 1992 <laughs> there is an interview with Brad Johnson who was senior vice president of comedy development at universal television heavily involved in red dwarf usa and quite possibly one of the people that was sat in a suit braying with laughter and or saying we're going to be so rich guys. Oh wow, okay. And I just happened to be reading this magazine the other day. Um, amongst the people in the writer's room which isn't something that's ever sort of been officially stated I don't think were Jay Cogan and Wallace Wolodowski who were supervising producers and head writers for The Simpsons. 
Right, they do mention the that they speak. had people from The Simpsons. Yeah, uh, but not that it was those particular two people yeah. who were, you know, people that know The Simpsons better than I do will will tell us, but they were running the show when the show was at its absolute most groundbreaking and yeah. incredible comedy ever to exist. Right. So that was after this point. So the caliber of people in this writer's room was not bad. No, no. It's the process, wasn't it? It was the... Yeah. It was the... Mm. Yeah. It's the lack of communication, the stability of either party or both parties. Again, a bad timing as well, like having just come off Series 5 when, when that had happened as well. Yeah. Probably made Red Dwarf USA a lot harder to. But anyway, we avoided doing the commentary on Dwarf in USA because we didn't want to bang on about Red Dwarf USA <laughs> too much. So, ah, well. job done. Yep. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> bad guys. Bad, bad guys. Yes. Set to, and I, I'd yeah. forgotten they'd use this music. I didn't realize they'd use um, Bartman Turner Overdrive. Let's rock. The, I was going to say the theme tune to Smash Your Nose yeah, is all I can think about. <laughs> Do you think they actually wanted to use the song from Bugsy Malone? I was thinking Bats the Bone. Ah, okay, I was right. thinking that as a. Oh, uh, yeah. I was thinking Bats the Bone. Yeah, 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 yeah. but it's. Bats the Bone, I think, would be a bit harder to cut to. That's what I was thinking. The good yeah. thing about. Yeah. Yeah, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's got those uh, moments, uh, and they do they do a really great job of cutting, you know, hits and punches and stuff, and yeah, you know, fight sequences in tune with the music. They do a really lovely job. Mm. They do kind of give up about halfway through the song, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're like, oh yeah, that'll do. <laughs> we've we've done two we've done two minutes of it. They're just like, oh, let's just show the back end of uh, only the good. Let's yeah. Just... I thought the song was going to continue of all on after the things. that. They don't. They just like, oh fuck it, let's just this is yeah because like they did on the drunk featurette they did the whole song of tub thumping and then finished with show me the way to go home and that was that made sense that was a nice ending but yeah they fade out batman turner overdrive halfway through and replace it with one of the worst scenes in red dwarf don't fucking remind us of that it's really jarring But yeah, it's, it's, it's again, fine. Featurettes are always fine. It's fine. I had it in my it's head fine. that the theme started to get a bit strained around this point, but actually Bad Guys is a really strong theme. Yeah. Um, that's actually quite easy to, you know... <laughs> yeah, easy to adhere yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. More so than alternate personalities. And very for good sure. for Series Managed. 5 as well, because Series 5 is sort of the, 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 the series of the bad guy. Yeah. So the Monster, monster of the Week, yeah. yeah. I liked yeah. it when it was all grey and they didn't have the Monster of the Week. The SFX of Red Dwarf 5. <gasps> well. According to Ian Symes, it's the 10th best. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's probably not wrong because the historical context is astonishing. And maybe yeah. this is, I've only really appreciated this now, rewatching yeah. it, because this is the first DVD extra that people would have seen live performed before it was on the DVD. <laughs> yeah. Because it was a, one yeah. or two DJs before Mike Tucker came with this video played it and did a commentary live to to the oh, room that's people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it was only in the um, second commentary that he did that and then and then it was or oh, Bedford and then it was on the DVD. But it is a fascinating little time capsule. It's amazing. It's, it's and it's the kind of thing where the fact that that exists is nothing short of miraculous. Yeah. When was it? 91 like when you were making it. Yeah, so they bothered to yeah. document this process as they were doing Series five. Whether they were asked to do it, I don't. I don't know. But they seemed like they were just doing it for shits and giggles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it is. It is very good. Like, and Mike Tucker is always very good at being able to. Like, I just wanted like more of that. 
I was just like, please, yeah. can we just have low? Like, because he 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 just goes into so much detail about the process, and it always I know it sounds pretty harsh to say this, but I just always wondered whether like Peter Egg was a bit more guarded with with regards to the process, like as if it was sort of like secret sauce. Industry secrets. Trade secrets. Yeah, be, just yeah. like not really wanting other people to kind of muscle in on their territory so they didn't want to kind of give away too much or show their hand. Yeah. But Mike Tucker was very much about sort of like, wah, share. Look at how cool and this just, is. Yes. Yeah, just kind of sharing the knowledge and, and, and passing and imparting everything that he knows, like especially DJs, that anyone's been to a DJ and seen a, a Mike Tucker chat is, knows exactly well, what Well, all, all of the FX guys, like, you know, the, the, the regulars being Pete Tyler... Rocky on occasion, but he's less regular than the others. Yeah. Um, and um, Nick, yeah, Nick Cool, Paul McGuinness, they're all amazingly generous with their time. Every DJ, you know, anyone could come to them, start talking to them about their work, and they will be there for hours talking to you about it. Yeah, they're just and not just about their work, about their favorite tastes, <laughs> about anything, anything, yeah, yeah. Oh man, and Rocky, like, yeah, Rocky is about as you can really see his personality in this as well. Like, yes, he, oh, he was the one who, you know, he was the joker of the pack, yeah, yeah. He, he was the one yeah. just p- trying to make people laugh and being the, being the character on, on the team, yeah, Brilliant. and yes. probably the most like when it comes to artistic talent, like the genius on that I mean, side he, of things for yeah. sure. Like, he, did, he invented Starbuck. invented Starbug. Mike designed the self loathing beast, but he just fucking carved this magnificent. Thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh jeez! That, I that just wonder how. Before. I want to know. I like it's so evocative and so like just seeing that footage. I, I just want to transport myself to yeah. North Acton yeah. <laughs> that, uh, in the past. I want to know what that workshop smelt like. You've got someone over here spray painting. Yeah. You've got someone over there, you know, uh, soldering. Yeah. You've got someone else making a plastic mold out of something. Yeah. That's it. Would have just been so rich and industrial and beautiful. It's like yeah. all my favourite smells of those. <laughs> Like, chemically like, maybe it's because i grew up in birmingham <laughs> <laughs> well if 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 peaky blind is anything to go smells. by like you just walk past a, a building and a jet of flame would come out behind you and like yeah, <laughs> yeah. It just smells like creativity like that's the thing so like yeah. there's like there's a there's a place i go to called the, the hack space and it does kind of just smell of people getting shit done like it's got a laser cutter in there, and it's got you know, like it's got a workshop and a you know, soldering session. Yeah, glue. It's just like when wood. you walk in, you can just smell like it smells of three D printing and solder and wood yeah. and 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 yeah, and it just it just smells like shit's been done, and it just yeah, I can I can yeah. imagine how uh, how evocative that must have been. But if you're watching them in in the process of building like the holler ship and. All that kind of stuff. I was like, yeah. that exists somewhere, somewhere in the world that's still about, and I want to know what it yeah, is. Yeah, the hollow ship thing probably won't have perished, at least, because it's all glass, so it's all perspex. The glue uh, might have, right, have yeah, perished, yeah. but yeah. They probably you know, yeah. you needed those um, perspex panels for something yeah. else. And, yeah, that's Because that doesn't look like cheap material, right? Like fiber optic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Really expensive material. <laughs> Um, the fact that we have like this behind-the-scenes footage of the literal actual explosion of Red Dwarf mm. Two. Do you know something else as well? <laughs> My, I, I, I never clocked it before, but Mike mentions the studio that they used was at Two Fifty Western Avenue. Yeah, and I thought, ah, there's a Western Avenue really close to my house. Looked it up. Yeah, 
It's uh, Greenford. Is it? Oh, it's just round the corner from where I live. It's less than four miles from my house. Oh bloody hell! Is where so it wasn't they in North did Acton. all of this stuff. They had a different stage. No, the well, the workshop was in North Acton, and then they had a proper oh, bigger I studio they had a space. Stage they in their to. workshop. So did I. No, I, I think that's well. how they did it later. I think when they. Yeah, you know, left the BBC and became the model unit, a separate company, and they were based at Ealing Studios. They had their workshop and the studio space right. all together. Yeah. But in that, yeah, That's so there was a separate so cool. facility on Western Avenue. It's you know right Hangar Lane. Yeah. It's not there now. It's now a block of flats. Oh, imagine uh, my is... shock and surprise. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, is that low 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 cost affordable housing for for the masses? Is it or is it? Fucking no. two million pound a flat, something. I mean, it is still, it's a bit of a shithole area. My one criticism of this as a feature is that it's not seven hours long. Yes, <laughs> is only that the mic commentary can't be turned off because obviously, ninety nine times out of a hundred, I would want to watch it with the Mike Tucker commentary on because that's like the whole point, is that he is narrating this visual information. And for the vast majority of the runtime, it's mostly silent. But there are still some bits where there's people talking and there's chit chat going yeah. on that you can't hear because Mike's talking. Usually, over Rocky. It. Like, and I'd have just liked. I'd have just liked the option, like make make the commentary version the default when you when you click on the menu, make the commentary version default. But to have an option of an alternative audio track that's just yeah. the clean stuff would have been nice. Even if you just like only people who knew to press the audio track button could find it like it wasn't even advertised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay here's the thing like this might be my ignorance who's james davis a member of the visual effects crew that just like didn't end up becoming one of the people that comes to DJ. yeah i guess so just like you know just thinking like how long was it like paul mcginnis never came to dj either and he was clearly an integral part of the team yeah. it's just yeah. yeah whereas alan brannan wasn't involved at this stage but came on board later on. i said paul mcginnis before when i actually meant alan brannan Racist. Yeah, tall racist. <laughs> uh, you are tall. No, it's just it's it's just interesting. Like I, I just hadn't ever clocked in before, and I always thought that like almost like everyone had at some point like you know been mentioned by someone in passing. But I, as far as I'm aware, this is the only time he's ever been mentioned. Yeah, he's like maybe he was. He looked younger. Mm, maybe, maybe it was just one was, series. This is just or... pure speculation. Mm. Maybe just joined the team for that series and worked on other projects yeah. throughout. Because you've got to remember as well, these were staffers at the BBC yeah. that didn't necessarily pick and had the ability to pick and choose their products uh, projects I think Peter Rag will have said I want this person this person this person but you know not necessarily everyone that was involved in a series would go on to the next yeah, series that's very true Mike does mention in his commentary that you know as members of the team they all had an affinity with Red Dwarf and all were desperate to do Red Dwarf every time it came yeah. up but there were probably other people who just drifted in and out yeah, every now and then. Yeah, if there were, if there you were, you had available. your core team and then you had yeah. your extras. There might have been series where one of them was tied up with another effects heavy project that happened to be going on at the same time as Dwarf and so couldn't do that one. It's incredible when you see the actual explosion of Dwarf, like just how fast it is. Yeah. And how it's scattered like, it all is. It's like, it's just done and it's just like, wow, that is such an iconic shot and yet it's just, it's two seconds and it's. Yeah. Gone. <laughs> it's just gone. <laughs> Sound of the camera coming up to speed as yeah. well because it's so oh, it, ridiculous. Well, yeah, it's so like 3,000 frames a second or something you could shoot at this thing. I mean, like, even like high speed cameras now make an un- 
godly amount of noise. Yeah, it's just the physics of yeah. them, isn't it? It's like you can't yeah, escape it. I don't even know yeah. what the storage medium is on those kind of things because I don't understand. Like it's, like, it's the same problem you've got with high-speed cameras as I do with high storage capacities. Is that but I don't understand how a solid-state drive physically works yeah. because it's just a chip and I don't understand how the memory is maintained if you don't have power and I don't understand it. <laughs> but it's like it's the same thing of like you know like high speed photography it's like how the fuck it's like only like most like high speed cameras now like are like do millions of frames a second and can do yeah. about one and a half seconds of footage mm-hmm. but then you watch it back it's like a week mm. it's like the <laughs> slow-mo guys so you, yeah. your, your phone can do probably the same speed that that you can do 100 and you can do at least 120 frames a second on a, on a standard phone but i remember having i remember having a phone that could do like 200 frames a second and i was having lots of fun with it. i feel like this is a good opportunity to put in the show notes um that video of you in testing uh high speed <laughs> <laughs> <Doing that>. yeah yeah <laughs> 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 it's a good video. It's very good. <laughs> yeah, I want every series to I go back in time and give Mike Tucker a camcorder mm. <laughs> for every single. I, I do wonder, like how, like how that started, because they talk a lot about how oh, we did some test shots, like pointing a camera and everything. I wonder if that was just like a little home camera that they got as part of the department for doing those, and then we're like. We should be using like oh, I'm gonna well, film Because like it doesn't show us th- this feature doesn't show us every it shows us a handful of, of props and models yeah. that they were working oh, right. on. So they probably only shot for a few days. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a few days in the workshop and a couple of days on in the studio out of the whole yeah. out of the whole production period for series five. Yeah. There's like there's so much more if they'd have been filming the entire process like deliberately filming the entire process, we would have seen everything. Yeah, but it's just like a little tantalizing sample of you know a day in the life or a couple of days in the life of the effects team. Well, what, a lot, who's though, working like... on what at this particular? Well, they had a lot yeah. of people working along, time. and you could see physically like people sat at the same desk, and one of them's over here with like the self-loading beast, and someone else is building a spaceship down the other end Amazing. with Moose Space Alpha and all that. Isn't it thrilling as well seeing the hero Starbug in that context when we've like that still has been used. The last time the Hero Starbug was used on camera was Series 12, wasn't it? Or yeah, it was brought in. For, maybe even um, Promised Land. It was brought in for, give and take. Twintica. And Twintica, yeah. Yeah. And that, that's just incredible. That, that thing, I mean, obviously, it's like, it might be, well, like um, Theseus's broom or the ship of Trigger. The, the Starbugger base. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's just it's just thrilling to see that just that 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 you know that um, that legacy of the BBC visual effects department you know still there still being used. We might as well go on to talk about the raw effects footage because it's kind of part of you know an hour's worth of amazing <laughs> visual effects related content on this. Didn't technically DVD. watch all of this, but yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, there's some very very interesting decisions <laughs> made in the model building stage and stuff like the fact that they you know like they needed caterpillar tracks and they built an entire system for yeah yeah so what we got so obviously we start hollow ships so you've got like the actual the, the, which was designed to actually bend and looked a bit a bit rubbish when it was moving mm. it's a shame it wasn't done i don't know maybe if it was done in slow motion maybe it would have looked better but it would have taken yeah, too much time yeah. i don't know maybe nice idea i mean obviously you know the changing shape is a cool concept but but yeah everything with the hollow ships looks it just looks stunning 
And I notice as well is they're using a lot, like there's some really sort of cut budget techniques of like creating a mat by just filming up at the sky and filming their own <laughs> yeah. mat from the camera footage of looking up at, you know, either like a white screen or just, you know, yeah. not like, not no chemical photo processes, just, you know, shoot it up against the sky first. Then we've got us mat line to work off. Well, that's one of my favourite things about the SFX feature is just all the time and money saving things that they did it's just it's just yeah. so basic and common sense and ingenious at the same time i just yeah yeah i love it i liked in the in the raw effects footage you see the one half of it that's fascinating is all the the takes that didn't get used but equally fascinating are the takes that did get used but you see an extra few seconds at the yeah. beginning or the yeah. end that you don't normally see and it's often like someone's arm comes into shop hold, <laughs> holding the props I saw, like, I saw one with the, the there was like for the the Starbuck that had crashed in terraform and the lights were all kind of flickering, and there was meant to be like a fire lit up inside Starbug. And it's like there's a slow motion shot of a man just coming in with a lighter, just slowly <laughs> lighting the fuse, setting the thing off, and then walking away. And then all of a sudden, there's like a camera track around Starbug. It's so good. Just like, what's the fuck? Like, is that a fucking hand? It's like, oh, yeah, that's actually meant to be there. Okay, yes. Yeah. When, when you see like someone so like, like, Super sped up, like um, Pete Tyler with his with his clapperboard. Yeah, or, the yeah. Clapper board. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and seeing the landing bay shots of Starbug of it leaving the landing bay, and it then immediately crashes. reaches the end of the set. Yeah, <laughs> it's like oh, no more landing bay. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like it. we shoot as long as we can. <laughs> yeah, and there's one shot, and I don't know what it was. Was it used on the? Yes, it was. It was this one shot where they approach the cargo bay doors and they don't open. And it's like as if Starbucks gone. Ah, oh, shit! Yeah, I got the keys. I'll go around the back and just slowly just buggers off around the back of the ship, like as if it's gonna go down. <laughs> I don't know what what part of that. I think it might have been maybe Deems and Angels or something. Like maybe yeah, a joke because they couldn't off. get into the cargo bay that yeah. day or something. I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just... uh, Holly, you know, cargo bay doors we were talking about. It, yeah. Um, I didn't actually clock it in this, but isn't this the Ow. series where there's a TARDIS hidden in a cargo bay? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's the shop. Yeah. yeah, it's Demons and Angels. It's when Demons they're trying to get out. The, it's when they're trying to get out of the cargo bay. You can see the, the, the Old TARDIS. Well, it's, it's, in two, it's in two different places. They've obviously like tried to genuinely get it into shop more than one. So there you go. <clears> Doctor <throat> Who was on BBC in the 90s. <laughs> there you go. This was only a year before... Uh, Dimensions in Time. So, oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, the amazing Dimensions in Time. My favorite unused thing is the Despair Squid's tentacle grabbing Starbug's leg. Ah, yeah, ripping off. it off. That's quite cool. Stunning. Yeah. yeah, that's quite cool. That, that's the kind of thing I kind of wish we that. didn't see. To be honest, I know it looked a bit like weird because it looked like because it was shot in reverse. But then mm. there's like the shot of. I mean, the Despair, yeah. when 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 we sort of found out that the Despair Squid was basically a rehash of the. Self-loathing monster just re, reskinned. Yeah, with um, yeah. yeah, and doubles yeah. as a. But uh, like, it's a, a change of scale as well because it's like just the head of the self-loathing monster yeah. can become the full body of a squid. It's a shame because if they shot that in water, like physically shot it in in mm. an actual tank of water, I think that would have been quite convincing. It would have been quite cool. I think just because it looks like it's been shot because its tentacles are moving faster in front of it, and it just looks strange. It doesn't. Look it, like... It's hard to. It... <laughs> It's hard to get across in the final episode, but with the shadows, because it all happens so quick that you don't really think about yeah. it. But 
the the squid is supposed to be like ten times bigger than Starbuck. It's supposed to be absolutely fucking huge, and like it casts that giant shadow because it is giant, yeah. and that's just going to be really hard to get across in in scale. I used to think that that sort of moving sort of blob was the ink that had been shot out, and yeah. I used to think that's was the, the ink fan commentary the made the same observation. Yeah. And to be honest, I think I thought that as well. It isn't very visually clear what's going on. No. Um, so it would have been nice to have had a few direct physical alterations, uh, altercations, I should say, like the tentacle and the leg. But I guess it's just one of those casualties right, of the, the strange. The, the sense of scale would be difficult to convey. Yeah, it, it would be big. very difficult. Yeah. <clears throat> or you have it like maybe grabbing onto an, a, a nondescript, like bit of green metal and you don't know what part of the ship it is but you know it's the ship if you see what yeah. i mean like maybe mm. that would have helped and also the uh, the shot of the self-loathing beast kind of looking over the whole terraform thing like a sort of a an omnipotent being being able to oversee yeah. everything that was quite a cool shot I quite like that yeah it feels like the the zenith doesn't it of the of the physical effects in red dwarf um, yeah, we're definitely getting really ambitious. Six was definitely good, but this is this is the height of their powers. Six was the start of playing with mm. digital effects, so this was kind of the end of the truly analog era. I mean, I guess we'll get onto that, but like, yeah, I think just the amount. Like, what did Mike say that was he estimated about five or six different Starbucks were built for Series yeah. Five, like you know from various kind of miniatures to the underwater version which they painted Starbuck 2 yes yeah, <laughs> yeah. but we've already seen Starbuck 2 again it's like again <laughs> this is the thing of like the crew having fun with the idea of no one told them to do that they did it as like they're a part of the law thing. Yeah, yeah exactly they just knew their shit at this point they knew exactly what they were doing with a dwarf and there's just confidence yeah, everywhere the sure. fact that they're like they they <laughs> they met uh, for drinks with Robin Dog and just like I want to, I want to fucking do underwater, you cunts. Let let us do some underwater <laughs> shit. We can do snow. Snow. We we've do done snow twice. And oh yeah, and reusing fucking new space alpha. So for. I mean, to be on a fly on the wall for those fucking conversations. Oh well. yeah. <laughs> fucking hell. Have we got anything in an aquarium? <laughs> <laughs> The Red Dwarf special effects are quite good. It's one of those things that, like, the more you see behind, you know, the curtain, the more interesting it is. It's like, That's, like yeah, sometimes it's not you think it would the spoil case. the magic, wouldn't you? Yeah. Some people, some people think it spoils the magic if you find out. <sighs> not when there's the this amount. Is done. Not when there's this amount of creativity going into it. It enhances it. Yeah. yeah, only if you give a shit about the fact that people have sat there and like, like the the wooden. Was it the wooden? cast for the size scan oh, right, it was yeah. made in wood and then and then it was vacuum formed so they could, you know and i was just like i was just yeah. like i was like oh i want to i want a mech yeah i, yeah, mech yeah. I <laughs> would like that place can i have a mech one place <laughs> maybe the thing that's the the difference between this and we're smegged is that we're smegged did spoil the magic because uh the processes were shit yeah. that they were doing that on was making a special effects yeah. shoot yeah, <laughs> whereas here, it's actually even more impressive when you see what went into it, uh, even more impressive than the final project. Yeah. Like watching Penn and Teller describe um, how they do a magic trick. Yeah, it is equally yeah. as entertaining as the trick itself. If not more amazing yeah. than the actual trick itself. 
is where Smeg versus um, sort of Red Dwarf Five. There's a whole level of experience that is missing between one and yeah. the other, and it's like there's a whole swathe of, of of talent that is just not there. Yeah, you can cobble together a model shop, but it's like there are things you inherently need to be able to do. Oh, to we'll we'll out. get onto that. Cunt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I have, I have no throttle trust. <laughs> Right. Yeah. We've only got a handful more extras to mention, and the kind of what we, uh, in a spoilt, entitled way, refer to as the standard extras, <laughs> which for most, <laughs> which for most uh, sitcoms would be the headline features, uh, trailers, idents, and episode intro. Okay. Oh my. So trailers. Interesting. No, I spotted on the trailers. Uh, mm-hmm. The first trailer has what looks like an early cut of Hollowship on it. Yep. Because it has uh, some effects footage missing that it doesn't have, and the cut is slightly longer, and a a different sound effect for Rimmer's dematerialization yeah. than is used in the final episode. Yeah, so it's obviously was cobbled together or a sort of a rough cut, but yeah, it looks to me like a season trail, uh, which is what well, is still do to this day the BBC and other broadcasters will have a reel of what's coming up in the new oh, year yeah. or what's coming up in the you know in the next thing and it's a short clip from ten different programmes. Right, yeah. uh, we've got comedy from Red Dwarf, yeah. blah 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 and then there'll be a clip of something else. Obviously on the D V D we only see Red Dwarf yeah. because that's the only bit that they've got the rights to include. So yeah, it makes total sense that if that was something that was, you know, put together and went on air in like December Maybe yeah. is like coming up in 1992, and they show you know highlights from the first couple of months of 92. Yeah. It might well have been an earlier edit mm-hmm. because they'll have just asked the production to send us something that we can cut into a trailer. Also, they would have been right up against the wire <laughs> with the, with the edit. Yeah, always yeah. for everything, especially with five. Yeah. Okay. Uh, also noted the second trailer, which seems to be an episode specific trailer for Back to Reality, gives away the twist of Back to Reality. It fucking does, doesn't it? Yeah. It includes the speed bumps bit. Yeah, it, it shows them doing the speed bumps, you know, in their own, in Starbug and hallucinating. Basically, yeah, it gives away back to reality. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much you could glean from that trailer and go. Oh, I mean, uh, we know, yeah. Obviously, we know what that scene signifies. Yeah, I suppose it would make. More but if sense you if you've seen that trailer and you get to the point where they get killed and wake yeah. up and they've been in a computer game and you haven't seen that bit aboard Starbug yeah. yet, you know that they're not really dead. I just wonder if you just wonder what point they're going to do that bit if it's not already happened and it's like, uh, or maybe it's something that was shot for the, the episode never showed. We might, you know, it might be something that just isn't in the episode. It's something that I would not put in a trail. If I yeah, it's clearly someone putting it together that is it like would looking be, for the funny it bits. It would be really hard to do a trail for Back to Reality because I would only want to use stuff from the first like three or four minutes of the show. Yeah, but maybe you'd have a teasy bit of maybe you'd have the fish that committed suicide gag or something along those yeah. lines as your teaser. But yeah, obviously I've worked on programs where my job has been to put out preview clips ahead of TX and like there's certain like Peaky Blinders, I will name as an example, where something happens, some twist happens in the episode. And so the amount that you've got to choose from before that twist takes place (laughs) is minimal. (laughs) 
You have to care about what the final product's going to be. Yeah. Very nerdy little note I made about the um, the second trailer is they actually moved the footage of the game down into the bottom of the screen so they could fit the two logo on, on the screen. Oh, that nice. was a very <laughs> nerdy little thing I noticed. Yeah, the third trailer is the one that's the Star Trek weird sort of very... <laughs> uh, to be fair, do you know what? The fact that they only used the Hell Red Dwarf to play with, they got a lot out of that. Someone had a lot of fun editing that one together because it is quite well done. <laughs> well done, Mr. Spock. Yeah, it's just got some unusual cuts in it, but it's it's good. It's fine. It's it's yeah. It's creating new lines of dialogue. Uh, don't give me that Star Trek wacko jacko. Yeah. <laughs> instead, because they didn't want to use the word crap. Uh, and it's inspired. It's the trailer that inspired our Red Dwarf uh, mashups video thingy. Link in the show okay. notes. Yeah, I did. I a few years ago now. I did that. Basically, made new lines out of existing bits of dialogue. It's quite funny. Most of them were submitted on the forum, so it's not my jokes, but very very. We'll take credit for them though. Oh yeah, the editing is superb. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Tommy Tallarico do the music for it. <laughs> <laughs> His mother's very proud. <laughs> Isolated music cues again. Just you know, how oh, good old good. More, more of the good shit. More of the good shit. Lots and lots and lots of good things. A lot of additional stuff that wasn't used. Like, mm. I've noticed actually there's actually sort of a trend of how good all just splurging out all this musical stuff for them to potentially use. And it's just like, he gets the stuff done he needs to do and then he just has fun. That's extra stuff. With, with what we know from the Smegazine interview of like how tight his turnaround times are, <laughs> uh, presumably he does some generic stuff that can be used you know, generically, I guess. Yeah. And he, he only does episode specific stuff, you know, lim- you know, in a limited way, but still, like the man, the man is a machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Dave Holland's sketch. I actually forgot to this read is... this bit. I didn't get this bit. It's all right. It's you know it. It's the Jan Vogel sketch. <laughs> you must, you know, must it. know it. Jan Vogels. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. That's what happened in the Jan Vogel sketch. <laughs> But yeah, this is instead of the talking book chapters, which were on the first four uh, DVDs. The reason being that they presumably only had the rights to use the first two books, and therefore there's nothing in Series 5 that is equivalent to the books, because the books were all out before Series 4 came yeah. out. There are bits in Last Human and Backwards that are adapted from 5 and 6, but no. And so instead of that, we have a Dave Holland sketch on each release. Photo gallery. I did look through the photo gallery and I had a few notes. I can't remember what they were. So that was completely I useless forgot. opinion. <laughs> I forgot about the photo gallery. Mm. One problem that I had was that my disc two is a bit scratched. I discovered, so I mostly just watched the extras on YouTube and I forgot about the photo gallery. I'm Testament sorry, to your uh, to your, um, <laughs> your your fanness is that you literally worn out the second disc of a, of a box set, probably yeah. more than the first. First one. disc yeah, is yeah, fine. Yeah. <laughs> the um, what what I can say, the perennial comment is, um, I wish they weren't in a frame because I'm assuming they were in a frame. They, all right, okay, I'll tell you, I'll screen. tell you, they were in the frame and they were in different sized frames. Right, that's okay. According to me in 2004, uh, the the behind-the-scenes pics are great. Uh, There's plenty of them that I didn't recognise. Some literally visual effects designs, too. 
The highlights have got to be the rejected enlightenment designs. Some of them are just nuts. Yeah, this. Yeah, I think basically right, if yeah. we. It was the ones that were shown at DJ. Was it the the uh, alternate oh, yeah. um, sort of Thunderbird Four kind of looking things that they made, and mm. like the the hollow ship as well, the kind of the big H building that looks like Patronus Towers. Um, yeah, and like like that's the does the designs that are on the on the DVD. Um, but yeah, they're really good. They're, they're, you know, galleries are always worth having a look through because they've got some really good unused stuff. I kind of want to see that the hollow ship realised, actually. I kind of would like to see that design done. For real. Like the crazy ones. Weblink. <laughs> it doesn't work. It's a load of broken links on it. Go to reddwarf.info instead. It's better. Easter eggs. Now, I found one Easter egg. Found the one Easter egg, which was the um, Inquisitor Gauntlet in the episode uh, titles. Yeah, I found that. And it episode GD, and you're typing one four five. Gamma, Delta, <coughs> one four five. Finkel, squirm me, flip, um, <laughs> That's the six of the best animation. Didn't bother watching it all the way through because I know it <laughs> so well. But yeah. Um, there's also, if you go to the chapter selection for quarantine, there is a picture of Mr. Um, Flibble carved into the inside of the locker, and that gives you an alien parody, which is interesting <laughs> because it clearly wasn't shot. It's one of the commentary, you know, camcorder in a commentary booth. We had the Easter egg, Easter egg on a previous disc where they were searching for an Easter egg that was embedded in Danny's hair. This is, they've taken a camcorder into the booth and they basically do a parody of the alien chestbuster scene, uh, but with Mr. Flibble bursting out of Danny's chest. <laughs> but Craig's in it. So it was clearly filmed as part of the Series 6 commentary because Craig is there and Hattie's not, but they must have wanted to do it for Series 5 because it's Mr. Flibble. So they said, oh shit, oh no, we'll just shoot it with Series 6 commentary instead. Oh, okay. I forgot about that. I remember seeing that one. And... There is a third one, which is on the subtitles menu on disc two. If you press up, it highlights a previously invisible picture of Holly. And it's the accent question, which is Doug speculating that Jane Leaves got the idea for Daphne's accent from him and Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I'd forgotten that that was, uh, that that was on there. Because like, we've idly commented on that before, maybe forgetting that it was on, <laughs> that it was originally mentioned. Well, I'd... I was maybe mixing it up with something else because I thought that that was on the Body Snatcher collection. Yeah. But on the Body Snatcher collection, there is an Easter egg and it's from the commentary session with Rob and Doug and they're just like having a chinwag about spitting image and stuff for like right, 10 yeah. minutes and it's amazing. I had sort of conflated those two in my right. head. So it was a small surprise to see it on this <laughs> disc. But once I found it and saw it, I was like, oh yeah, I remember this bit. Uh, it's bollocks anyway because at no point does um, does Daphne say, yeah, no, yeah, no. At uh, no point does she do a Manchester accent. But that's <laughs> she did a better job than her family. Well, her family had a variety of British yeah. accents, in the, you know, how families do. <laughs> <laughs> There's just one brother in every family that has a, a an accent from 300 miles away from the rest of the family. Uh, that is it, other than the physical stuff itself, the cover we haven't talked about. Blue. It's blue. Ish, yeah. Aqua, <laughs> just aquamarine. Aquamarine. Just blue. It's blue. What's funny about this is that it's it's the Esperanto, right? Yeah. And yeah. in the effects of Red Dwarf, it is very specifically 
mentioned that they gave it an yellow. orange colour or yellow colour. Yellow. It's yeah. like, yellow yeah, like we want it. A Thunderbird yeah. 4 reference. And then, it's underwater, you fool. And then it's underwater, so now, it, yeah, it's, it's like, it, I don't know, I just found it amusing. And like, obviously, like, well, the concept is stretched. It, yellow, <laughs> yellow would probably have been more striking. Yeah. Yeah. But you wouldn't have recognised yeah, it. True. We only know that it's yellow because of these behind-the-scenes yeah. features, which we wouldn't have even known before we'd bought this <laughs> DVD. So. And even then, before it was actually sort of dressed for the shooting in the water, it was covered in kind of algae and barnacles yeah, and yeah. stuff. So it was all kind of covered up. So you would never have... Yeah. This is definitely in line with how it looks in the episode itself, You know, as brief as its appearance in the episode itself yeah. is. We're definitely at the stage where it's like, Oh shit! What can we use from this series? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't even know what they could have used but, outside you know, of that. Like I, can't, I genuinely can't. Yeah, unless unless they shit. just circled back. The Enlightenment. Oh, oh yeah, the Enlightenment would have been good. They could have had. Oh, they could have had it in a transparent oh, case. <laughs> <laughs> completely transparent apart from the Red Dwarf logo and the, oh, uh, Craig, so Craig like painting some transparency kind of... onto it like <laughs> yeah. like he's in Photoshop <laughs> yeah you'd have coming out of Craig's brush the little checkers with a booklet as was the style at the time can you show me the cartoon that you That is a picture. <laughs> it's a picture. Very good. It has the... Because um, uh, I'd misremembered and, th- and thought that the anecdote about John Pumphrey falling in the lake was in the documentary, but it's not. It's in the booklet. Oh, okay. oh right. He talks about it in his interview with us, John Pumphrey, but yeah, it's in the booklet as well. He, did he mention all the commentaries as well? Oh, do they? Yeah. And the in on series six when they went and did the location shoot for emo hawk they had a life jacket for him oh <laughs> yeah. They, yeah they weren't using pants <laughs> <laughs> and it also comes with it's just more foley for you a leaflet for the prop store okay and like just go on to either gnt or reddwarf.info and search for prop store in the respective search box. You'll see how often in this period the prop yes. store would, could be relied on to fill a hole <laughs> if it was a slow I'd, news I'd day. love to know who has shares in the prop store. Yeah. Or who did. And where they got all this stuff from. <laughs> Cat's costume from Justice is the highlight of the props that are on this leaflet. It's stunning. Mm. You know, the gold oh, and purple yeah. one. Looks oh, like, yeah. Looks like something Prince would wear. Yes. <laughs> And that is everything. Finally. <laughs> it is a packed, packed DVD. And they they continue to be packed, well, don't they, from this point? Yeah. Yeah. Gluttony. Until <laughs> until series uh, until we get to the day era, but we'll come to that in the future. Mm. But yeah, in conclusion, bloody hell well done. Yeah, Christ. It, it's virtually faultless. Yep. <laughs> There's only you know, minor criticisms that we can level at it that they cut off Beckman Turner Overdrive too soon. Or yeah, that, a feature uh, that no one gives no a shit one gives about. A yeah. Shit about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, this series in particular, like, I don't remember it being this this big when we were getting all the DVDs. Kind of didn't appreciate it at the time anyway. But I do really? now. And it, it's a huge step up from series three and four 
which in themselves were a huge step up from series one and two. Yeah. And it's like, how high could we go? You, you th- we thought at the time, like, oh, this is perfect. Like, and series three and four came out. This, oh, this, if this is this the is standard perfect. from now on, then amazing. Yeah. This is perfect. This can't be topped. Oh, it's been topped. It's like with like video game graphics when you're kids. It's like I cannot imagine any better graphics than Sonic Two, and then and then you know it uh, happens. Have we? Are we yet to see better graphics than Sonic? Ah, uh, good point. Yeah, Sonic Mania. <laughs> you picked a bad example there. <laughs> so yes, join us for the next voyage of re disc of a re, where we'll be moving on to series six. Uh, before then, there will probably be another Smegazine rack. Will probably be the next Dwarfcast, unless we decide to follow up on our threat to commentate on absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but we will see. Thank you very much for listening, as always. If you want to get in touch with us, you can leave us a comment over at www.ganymede.tv or you can X us. Twitter handle is Ganymede Titan. Okay. So this should give you an idea of the kind of person we're working okay. with. Okay. Or you, could, or, or you could just leave us the fuck alone. <laughs> but until next time, thanks once again for listening. And remember that the director that didn't work on Series 5 was... Ed by everybody. Ed by. Thank you for listening to GNT Dwarfcast, and we hope sometime in the future you'll decide to listen to our Dwarfcast again. Have a safe onward journey. Goodbye. Yeah, do you remember when you were when you were driving the two of us home and you accidentally went onto the M4? Did I? What? <laughs> Which. <laughs> We'd been to buy something that can't be bought in shops. Oh, um, did I do right? Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you missed your turn, and we ended up on the M4, and it took us like an extra hour to get home <laughs> because we had to wait until there was a turn off to come that, back that off. That was here. one of those that I was like, I was being cocky. It's like, oh, I've done this. Fuck it. I, I know, you know, I know where <laughs> yeah. to get onto the M40 and get home, and I won't put my sat nav on. When you say not available in shops, we talked about those knives you see on the QBs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a special compilation of uh, <laughs> ten discs worth of Christmas hits. <laughs> <laughs> that for some reason they were selling by the ounce. <laughs> Four hundred and twenty of your greatest hits. <laughs> <laughs>